Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the all-new, all-different Knife Talk. I'm Jeff Fader of Fader Knives. Usually, Mareko Mamasi and Craig Lockwood are here, but they're not here. They're both out doing their thing, and I'm great. I'm lucky to be here with my friends, Noah Vashon and Fingal Ferguson. Guys, how are you? I'm good. Hey. I'm good. And yourself? Pretty good. Now, this is the first time, Noah, you and Fingal have spoken to each other, right? That's Yeah, that's it. Yeah, speaking from voice across voice, the ocean. Voice to voice, exactly. Yeah. Bar yeah. social media, this is the proper job. <laughs> that's right. Well, I appreciate you both being here on such short notice, and uh, you guys are fantastic, f- fantastic hosts to be doing Knife Talk. Usually, you guys listen to Knife Talk. Usually, we'll do questions, we'll do this, that, and other thing. And what we can do is, we'll just fool around, and if we need any questions or tough dilemmas or something like that, we'll see how it goes. Uh, in the meantime, before we start anything, I just want to say that Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat. Even Heat is the manufacturer of the finest heat-treated ovens available. And if you want to go get yourself a heat-treated oven from Even Heat, go to Soul Ceramics. Go follow the link at knifetalk.net slash heat. And the listeners that using that link will get $75 off. They're Even Heat and free shipping in the United States. I met Spence. Uh, I saw Spence at Maker Camp. What a great guy. What a wonderful family. Thank you, Even Heat. All right, back. Not that, we got two out of the way, guys. Get right. two out of the way. <laughs> Tell me about about the. Is it the kind of invite only, or how do you actually get to that event? It's one of those things. Well, is it worth getting onto a plane from all the way from say this Maker side of the Camp? World? Yeah, Maker Camp. Maker Camp. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening, to Maker Camp is about I would say just north of two hours from Manhattan, and it's okay. a, it's a gr- it's great. I mean, I tell you what, this year was amazing, and I and, and I've said this on last episode, but um, Reko Mamasi is. <laughs> I've known this guy for so long, but I've never seen him work. He's such a good demonstrator, and he's so goddamn talented, and he's so good at what he does. I was taken aback just because, you know, we fuck around every week on Knife Talk. So I was surprised. Uh, It's a lot of fun. It's great. I mean, it's 
it's rural. It's not really near the city. It's not really near Albany. It's like, you know, it's a rural situation, but it's getting bigger and bigger every, every year. Is that kind of upstate kind of direction or something like that? Yes. It's about two and change hours north of the city. So we're, you're on the, you're on the, uh, the west side of the Hudson river and you're Mm -hmm. kind of in like where the, where the uh, ski slopes are. So okay, not too okay. far from that. Now there's good friends out that direction. I'd love to actually, I must, I must uh, try and, it would be several, several birds with one stone. <laughs> well, Joel is not that far. Joel from Cut Brooklyn. Yeah. He's not, yeah. he's actually not far from me. That was, you know, I, I, I mentioned this before, but like my, my adventures in the early years of, am I becoming a knife maker involved actually visiting Joel when he was in Brooklyn and calling out with a great friend and seeing him in the workshop. And that was mind-blowing way back. I mean, I don't know how long ago that was. Easily 10-ish or so years ago. Well, you and you, Fingal and Tomer, are mm. both give Joel... Joel, Joel uh, what, how do you pronounce his last name? Berkowitz. Berkowitz. He's... Hmm. Ber- I'm not to, be, not to be confused with Sam Berkowitz. <laughs> or 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 uh, the, or the uh, or I should say uh, the uh, whatever that bad joke. Nobody wants to be confused with him. Yeah, Joel is Joel is. I mean, he really started that knife making business. Mm. He started that knife making business. I mean, years ago, and he was one of the first guys in New York to be doing kind of that small batch culinary culinary stuff. Oh, he made it cool. Yeah, definitely. What? No. When did you kind of? I mean, we've we've talked on full blast. I've talked, I've talked to both these guys on full blast. Actually, now I want to talk about to you about your about uh, something that you posted this week <laughs> today. Actually, you were posting this picture of this beautiful knife. You make these beautiful culinary knives, and you said, "This is the only thing good that's come out of my shop," or something like that. Yeah, the lone survivor. What happened? Oh, it was. I mean, it was one of those weeks that's like, it was so bad you just had to laugh because it was never, I don't think I could have repeated that many mistakes if I tried. It was just like a perfect storm. I had a batch of seven knives that I was working on because, of course, it's Christmas. We're leading up to, you know, busy time of year. I'm trying to get as many things done as I can. And so I had some Damascus. I had some forged 5200. I had San Mai. And... Every single one of them had this catastrophic failure in it for, and, and they were all like different, you know, different failures. It wasn't like it was all just, oh, I, you know, set the temperature on the kiln wrong or something and they all got screwed. No, they each had their own like unique, disastrous. Anyway, it was, it was one of those things. I was obviously bummed at first, but whatever. I mean, you got to just kind of keep moving. You, you, you let the first one go, the second one's, oh, bugger. But after a while, there's <laughs> there's a point where you're like... It, it, yeah, it was. And and I I, like, I, I think it was on Thursday. I, tr- I thought, okay, there's two knives left. Come on, baby. Something's got to work out here. And, and out of the seven, the sixth one, also, it was a failure. And I was like, oh, my God. But so anyway, I got lucky. One of them survived. And I learned something. I mean, working with 52100 is something I haven't done a lot of. So I, I, I've had a few people reach out and offer some advice and some good, some bad. You know how it is. But what were the problems <laughs> you're having with the 52100? Okay. So it actually turns actually this afternoon, um, Devin Thomas reached out to me, which was out of the blue, and said, Hey, give me a call. I think I might be able to help you, which was amazing. So I had, a, I just got off the phone with him and we talked a lot about 52100. And, um, so there's a certain, like, I guess, group of steels that they refer to as red short steels. And what I'm kind of understanding is that there's a there's a more specific working temperature that they have to kind of be kept in. Like, so you, you don't can want to I, forge can I ask a hot. quick question? Yeah. Are these, these aren't monosteels now. Had you manipulated these and, and changed them before you were heat treating them? 
No, this is just 52100. Okay, I had okay. a big chunk of 52100. I mean, the other failures were all kind of like for their own different reasons, but I kind of understood what it was. I mean, I knew what had gone wrong, you know, whereas with the 52100, I didn't quite know what had gone wrong because it crumbled. Like there was a knife that literally just looked like, um, you know, somebody had taken some rocks and shoved them in the steel, you know, like the grain growth had gotten so huge. Um, so it turns out when you overheat steels like this, um, that's what happens. Um, you know, it, it, I couldn't quite follow everything. I mean, obviously Devin Thomas is super knowledgeable about this stuff and I, I'm nowhere near, you know, able to understand everything that he was had to tell me, but too hot. That was what I took away. Too hot. Okay. What do you think would be, what do you, if you were just to tell, if you, I'm just posing the question, yeah. if you were to take away all the problems that you had, what do you think would be something that would help you make sure that didn't happen again? Um, well, I think having, um, a thermocouple on my forge is something yeah. that I'm going to end up doing. It's one of those things that I was like, oh, I should do that, but you know, just put it off. I think it's worth doing, especially if you want to work with 52100. So. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. And I know that there, yeah, because there are, I've talked to a few companies who said that that's in the works. Oh, cool. And that's something that like, and, and I mean, in the, when I say in the works, it's like people have been saying that for a long time. Hmm. And I've said, I've been saying to a lot, I've been saying to companies that were thinking about it is, you know, I know that Bob Rankin, uh, who, who, who is an awesome knife maker. I buy all my, I don't make Damascus to sell. I buy my, Damascus from Bob Rankin. Bob's he put great. a he. Well, he's. He, I, I can count on it. Like I can't. I don't make enough that I feel confident in it. And when I get it from him, it's bang on every single time. And I think that number one, I think it's important as knife makers to be using other you know small businesses. But at the same time, it's like he created a forge with a thermocoupler, and he can kind of see where we're at. And yeah. it seems as though that that would be the next logical progression in production metalworking well there's also the element of of logic as well where you know let him do what he does very well and let you do what you do very well and therefore sufficient like you know if you take back to japanese times where somebody did the the handles the sailors the blades the forging the heat treat you know and they they produced hundreds of knives a week as opposed to three or four yeah that's absolutely right we for some reason feel like we have to do everything ourselves where, you know, but we kind of want to know how to do everything ourselves but then it's nice to take a step back and, and and actually then sort of be efficient and learning what you're good at, I think, is important mm. too. Just knowing, yeah. okay, this is just not something that excites me. I'm not going to need to. Sp- I'm not going to want to spend the time to. to well, get really I'm, good at this. <laughs> I'm afraid of the rabbit hole of falling in love with, um, you know, Damascus. It would, it, I could see that, but yeah. I, I, yeah, I think then it would, it would definitely be illogical in some ways to. It would drop my efficiency. Do you think that one of the other reasons why is because we devalue our own time? No, no, I, I really value my time. <laughs> no, but you, of course. I mean, you got a million things to do. I'm saying that, like, when we're talking to Noah and saying, uh, you know, we're talking about, like, you know, doing it, is, is, is do we want to do everything ourselves because we we don't value our time enough, our, our financial, the financial value of our time. So we're just like, I could do it myself and it'll be cheaper than if I buy it. Yeah, I think that there's this sort of push and pull that goes on, at least with me. It's like, am I, am I an artist or am I a businessman? And I'm right. neither. But I'm kind of somewhere in the middle and bouncing back and forth between the poles. And the, the, the guy who wants to be an artist is making horrible business decisions because he wants to spend a whole lot of time playing around with new toys and techniques and do everything himself. And then the businessman's like, well, hang on a sec, bud. You got to make some money this month. Get back right. in the shop and make some you know, stainless monosteels and pump those out. 
And then the artist goes, well, I don't want to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's this, you know, yeah. constant but back the, and the forth. Perfect, the perfect world is the businessman who likes to dabble with art. <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, because, you know, it, it's nice, I mean, in a day where we have to be interesting and, and social media savvy and everything else like that. And even, if anything, to invigorate our own energy levels, you know, there, there's always the next project. I know I'll always go straight to the new project and the newest thing that I've or something that I'm learning at the time is is the thing I'm focusing on the most so mm-hmm. you know I for for sanity and for everything else it's nice to kind of keep reinventing the wheel but within the confines and the logic of of still being productive yes I mean in terms of value I you know I have people who are hourly workers and I know that if I come like I know that my wife is going to work tomorrow Saturday my kids got work to do and I don't have a lot to do. I could go into the sh- I know that I could go into the shop, gets enough work done that it helps my, the whole team out. Mm-hmm. And I know that that will, I mean, I'm not valuing my time in terms of like, I mean, I'm not an hourly worker, but at the same time, I'm like, I know that if I haul ass tomorrow, it will benefit the business. And I'm, but at the same time, I'm not valuing my own time. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's a situation that I have a hard time relating to because I'm just a one guy. You know, I haven't had a business partner. I haven't had employees. And I think I'm sure it's the different, you know, it's like the difference between being a single guy and then suddenly being a father, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you're responsible for more than one person here. And so that means you got to change the way you look at things. And so that's my guess. Anyway, I just don't well, know. It's, well, you, the weirdest part is I'm le- the, mo- the least stressed I've been in my life is when I started becoming fader knives of business and it doesn't make any sense like when i was working in metal shops i was i couldn't sleep at night because i was usually in charge of installation tools and what if we go on the job and we don't have enough drill bits and it's my fault and i would constant or what if i didn't weld that railing correctly what if it's out of square and we install it doesn't work i would have nothing but and i'll be in tr- i'm gonna get in trouble with the boss or i was stressed out all the time and now that i have a business where people depend on me and my livelihood and the business and I can't get sick and I can't get do this and I can't do that. I'm not, I sleep well at, I don't, I'm not freaking out at all. Like it doesn't make any sense. I should be, I should be having like, my hair should be falling out out of panic and I should be a total wreck and I'm not. <laughs> what was that? Oh, One of those great quotes about, about like in, in a couple of years, you know, something bad happens in a couple of years time. I'm not going to be worried about this. So why wait until then? <laughs> so that was a good, a good quote. That is. Yeah. Yeah. My sister once said to me, she, I was I, years ago, I was complaining because I had to pay up, you know, some car repair or something like that. And she goes, "Listen, you're worried about money. You're never going to remember this money that you're spending now in a, in, in a couple months. I'm like, mm-hmm. you're not even going to remember it. So it's like, what's the point of freaking out about it? And I was just like, you know what? That makes perfectly good sense. Like, I try not to nickel and dime everything and remember every nickel because otherwise you're just going to lose your mind. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I won't nickel and dime." My my abrasive belts. I'm going to go to Combat Jesus. Abrasives, guys. CombatAbrasives.com, and you put in the promo code Knife Talk 15. You're going to get 15 percent off your belts, your abrasives. You get your Scotch Bright belts. You can get your 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 compounds. You, you like uh, for your your rouges and all your all that all the the buffing wheels and all that stuff. So go to CombatAbrasives.com. Promo code Knife Talk 15. See, that's how you do it, guys. Smooth. Now look, what are you going to do? So Fingal, what's going on in your world? 
Oh, well, I suppose it feels like we're getting ready for Christmas, even though it's a while away, um, just being ahead of everything like that. I'm still playing around with things in the farm. Um, got interesting sort of quotes for solar panels and what it would cost to kind of install those. We're putting planning again for a biodigester on the farm, which will hopefully do lots of logical things on the farm and drive a generator that would bring you know that kind of side of things down. So that's been sort of quite fascinating at the moment. Apart from that, we're planning the you know all the usual family things and who's going to how many people are going for football matches and rugby matches and stuff tomorrow <laughs> i was flipping coins with my wife which is well actually she ends up doing the most of them um because she's the sporty one um but apart from that yeah i've, I've um there's i've yeah, i'm sort of winding down the knife list kind of thing and trying to move towards newsletters and doing knife drops um, and that's kind of all based around probably the starting point of um, the Damasteel event happening in November the 12th. Um, so I'm kind of, that's kind of the big sort of launch of that whole thing. So for me, it's it's kind of interesting. It's There's the pros and the cons of when you've been doing something for years to sort of reinvent how you, how you sell your knives and do that. But um, I'm kind of looking forward to it. I'm kind of thinking it'll be a little bit more relaxing in respects to just being creative and making a range of knives and just releasing them out as opposed to to sort of always trying to keep a sort of a selection of knives available for the way I've always been doing it. So apart from all that, yeah, things things have been good, nice and creative. We're um, on the on the food side of things, been doing a lot with the cheese and the dairy. Had the wonderful people from Neil's Yard Dairies in London who are one of our distributors who are probably got the we've got the most history with in many ways. And they're fascinated because they they have so much knowledge about what they do. Um, and I was showing them around. And we're coming up with a new product for the smokehouse. We're going to be making a, a mortadella or sort of a, oh, an, a, a variation of it. And actually, it's one of those things that's kind of more complicated than you'd think. There's sort of a multiple layered kind of sort of bit of charcuterie that, that's sort of three or four stages that you have to kind of nail down so we're making lots of batches to make sure it's consistent before we kind of release it out into the world um so i, I love those kind of things of the, the creative elements of kind of getting something off the ground I, I, it kind of gives me new energy so that's kind of what i've been up to lately question about the mortadella mm. is the reason why it's different i want to go back to knife making mm. but you know the mortadella i can't I can't pass up kind of that go is it, <laughs> is it because is it because it's more of an emulsified it is yeah it's emulsified it's more so I, I've normally dabbled with salamis, which are lactic fermented kind of salamis. So it, they're kind of based more on an aging process and everything like that. Whereas mortadella is kind of, you know, the, there's the the added in afterwards section of the the cubed cooked fat and the and the pistachio nuts, and then there's the nailing the perfect emulsion and the ratio and the spices and the ingredients and the whole combination and then the cooking um, process, so that. Let's say, for example, you, you kind of make it and then all your bits of fat don't start falling out as you slice it and you have textures that are kind of right. And so, yeah, the, it, it, it's kind of interesting that way because it is it's a layer cake. Um, com- but I think it's like we make several salamis, but they have such similarities in respect to that lactic kind of zing where a cooked sausage in this case is is a whole different kind of accompaniment from a different angle. And I'm kind of thinking it's a good a good one to kind of have in there. That's going to be it. That's going to be a. T- that's mortadella has become very popular these days. Mm. You know, b- yeah. back in the day, it was bologna. You yeah, know, yeah. In the United States, it's called bologna. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, 
and and it was like so, I mean, growing up, we had bologna sandwiches all the time, hmm. and you know now more to Dell, I'm seeing a much more people are much more, taking a, a far more high well, it's a, end. It's approach. a posh, it's a posh one, isn't it? I mean, by having yeah. pistachio that's in there, it's 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 more yeah. you know, woo. <laughs> but the, isn't it basically the, just paste? Right, it's kind of like, kind of like, yeah. uh, it's, it's like, like a you're making a hot, it's, it's, it's like you're making a giant hot dog, but right, with okay, cubes, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. cooked, cooked bits of or cubes of, of fat and the pistachios. But mm. the, um, yeah, no, I, 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 it's been it's been interesting, kind of, you know, dabbling around with this one. But it's not going to be three foot wide, and there's a few other things because right. if you go if you go to actually Bologna in Italy, like they are huge, they're very large diameter. And that's part of the characteristic. And you don't kind of fuck with these things as well, that, that there is a way to do it and that's how you do it. Whereas we can reinvent the wheel all we want if we're going to probably tip the hat to, to Mortadella. But um, it is still nice to, to get the points that you must respect as what makes it good, but you also put your own twist on these things respectfully. And um, But a great friend of mine who <laughs> is a restaurant um, up in Galway, Jess, like she was saying, you got to take big pieces of that, breadcrumb it and deep fry the fucker. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think for every classy element of a charcuterie board, there's somebody out there who's going to breadcrumb it and deep fry it. And we all know secretly, like, <laughs> like oh, yeah, that's me. It. Let's do it. <laughs> well, you're for, I mean, no, I mean, let's just, let's just keep the, cut the shit. I mean, Montreal, where you're from, around where you're from, is some of the best food in the world. It's mm. good. It's like, I mean, I, yeah, definitely. I haven't traveled enough to really be able to compare it, but, but, you know, in Canada, I would say it's tops. Oh, for sure. it's, I mean, when I've visited Montreal, my doors are blown off every, every place I go. I mean, even just yeah. poutine and all that stuff and, you know, different the smoked meats and stuff like that. It is really, it's like, it's like European food with American portions. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of fat. A lot, a lot of, of fat. A lot of fat, a lot of carbs. Yeah. It's so good. It's we, great. we prefer the word butter. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, you know what I'm getting at. Sounds um, better. Well, yeah, Finkel, yeah. how would you do? You think that there's a connection between how you make decisions about what kind of meats you're going to start to make and the food you're going to make, and then also how you how you think about the new products you're making at Finkel Ferguson Knives? I mean, do you think about is there kind of a connection there? Well, I mean, when I'm making knives, I'm daydreaming about food, and when I'm at the food side of things, I'm daydreaming about knives. So they're intertwined, and definitely how I've the systematic approach of taking ingredients and making something you can't help but look at a systematic way of making a knife you know I'll, I'll, I'll batch heat treat blades I'll batch cut them out I'll pre-stock and lay out as many knife handles as I kind of pre-cut and laminate with a G10 or whatever it is so I've got all my pieces in place and um, and in that kind of respect I suppose there's a systematic approach to those things, just like you would kind of have with food. And I hate to think I'm running low on something and stockpiling and making sure you have everything so that if something's missing, you know, you can. So, yeah, I think I think what I, that that's an element of what I've learned about f what food has helped me to do with knives. But um, I suppose if that's what you're asking. I, well, part of me also wonders, like when you're making your, because I, I, you were fortunate. I was fortunate enough to have a care package sent by mm. you. When you're when you're cutting your product, do you ever think I should make a knife that just works for this? Mortadella like, knife. Yeah, mortadella. What's your mortadella knife? <laughs> well, I think that probably applies more if they were three foot wide. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a tuna sword, but for yeah. mortadella. Oh yeah, my god! I, I, I think they kind of go at it in pieces. I think that's the kind of thing you know. And I, of course, when you see it, it's 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 always usually sliced by a machine wafer thin. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I 
individual tools i mean bar the boning knife it, it's the only one i've ever really connected to as, as the tool of the trade and and i find that what i would do myself i mean if you're a butcher you can have three or four knives you can have that that would help you in your butchering knife but i do everything with one a kind of a classic kind of six inch skinning and boning and everything is all done with this one knife and just like i cook i have a little paring knife and i have a large chef knife and even though my knife magnet has 20 knives on it I still lean over for two, but right. it took me a long time to find my favorite two, and I'm glad for the other ones, and I do use those for different roles. What I'm kind of getting at is that I think that, that I like the fact that there's a knife for every job out there, but I still kind of, when I reach out for something myself, I don't jump and change between hundreds of different knives, but I have to admit, I do find myself in situations where there is a unique situation where the perfect knife has helped me you know, help me out or I will, I will go to it. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to answer. How do you, how do you divide your time? I'm just because it sounds Mm. to me like you've got two full time things going. Five, are you more or less five, five, do you five really and a family right so <laughs> yeah, so yeah, how are you doing problems. all this um, like how do you divide between just cur- like specifically like the I knife could re- making I could really compared put it to other simply. stuff yeah yeah but just putting yeah. it really simply if no one's sick no machines are broken i can spend a lot more time making knives and if somebody's if, the, if there's machines that are broken and people are sick um then i'm stepping up more and rightly so Yep. So there's right. about 20, 20 or so people in Gabin. Yeah, more than that. But there's a core 20, group of 20 people that make everything work between the farm, the cheese, the smokehouse, the gardens, the farmer's markets, and, and, and at home with the family. So between everything, I have morning rituals that I love with the family. And then that means I'm kind of post a school run. I go in and I don't, don't you know, all mornings are usually involved with going between the smokehouse, the, the dairy, and, and, and everything there to just make sure everything's running smooth. And if there's anything not, I jump straight in, and that's what I'll, and that's priority wise. Huh. And then after that, what's lovely is I can just then go on to whatever projects are needed at the time. And like I'd like to think that there is that 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 I can do a lot more of the knife stuff. So I I, I am very lucky that I get a lot of time with the knives, and that's thanks to the group and, and the people who help us at the farm. Because like let's say for summer, I was I wasn't in the workshop a lot, and I'm in. I mean, I was I was not in there a lot. I was actually tied into a lot of other things and like at the moment i'm getting a lot of time in the workshop but i'm grateful that i can kind of get in there and you know usually from lunch onwards i can do stuff but i find that i'm i don't actually have an office Uh, what i have is my phone and i can do everything from there so i do i just find that even when you're making knives you're still popping back and forth from messages and in between things right and accomplishing a lot so i suppose maybe i've just i actually have despite what people say, become a good multitasker. <laughs> you know. That's not natural. Men yeah. are supposed to multitask. Or at least, Does, I mean, I might guess. not do it well, but I, I'm doing I, it. I'm, I'm horrible at it. Kudos. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting is because is also, you know, the, the, the farming and the cheese making and the mm. meat making versus the knife making, I mean, one of them can go bad. <laughs> the other yeah. one can't go bad. You can like, walk away like, from knives. Yeah, you can walk away from knives for months. You can have knives for years that you haven't finished, but you know you yeah. really have oh, yeah. like yeah. there's like a shelf life on all the the food products you guys are making. Oh, there's so much more dependency as well. I mean, like there, you know, there's seven to eight people working in the smokehouse, seven eight in the, in the dairy. You know, you suddenly find like there's power cuts and nobody can do anything, or a machine is broken and it's all ground to a halt. There's always issues with food because food is not simple, especially yeah. artisan food. You know, there's 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 a big thing there. But without boring people, I I, I think that the 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 juggle is to kind of just make sure that everybody's happy in doing what they do and 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 you know 
my parents are still here and involved in doing so much. And, you know, there's my wife is amazing and doing so much and we have people helping us at home. So, yeah, it's it's just the, the, the luck of having all the cogs working and, and just to try and keep those going and the foresight of making sure <laughs> and seeing problems and catching them before they do go wrong. But I'd like to think that the the, the knives versus the food. I mean, we move about two ton of cheese a, a week, two ton of kind of cured meats a week, and Jesus. and wow. um, and we're and I'm kind of making six to twelve knives <laughs> a week. <laughs> how the fuck? How the fuck are you doing that? How are you doing that? Both. It well, still sounds like a lot. Well, I'm like I said, there's there's so many people doing what they do and doing it so well that that you know they're they're the people in the dairy doing it full time and the smokehouse doing it full time and i'm jumping in and out just making sure they have what they need um but if you imagine that sometimes you know you know this there's the challenges and stuff there but but kind of getting back to it i suppose it's just me with the knives and sometimes that can feel maybe quite profitable and logical because it's you know that i i can control so many things and walk away when i need to walk away but I can't walk away from the the, the the smokehouse and the dairy when they need me to make sure that because um, that there are more dependencies and more things and more stuff happening and there's more history and more you know so there's a lot of that kind of pressure so yeah I mean I I, I like you were saying earlier on there is times of waking up in the middle of the night in the morning making sure I haven't you know, welded something on properly and I have enough drill bits <laughs> in my own so world that 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 makes me wonder. Because you have to be so efficient in, in the shop making mm-hmm. knives, do you feel like you've made design decisions based off of how to be as efficient as possible? Because I know you don't hand sand your knives. Well, I don't have to be. Genius. I don't have to be efficient. But well, I mean, I, not it, hand it, sanding. But it's become game on. Is... But it's become game on. I mean, efficiency becomes one of the challenges in itself. Being a good knife maker and setting yourself challenges and goals, just like yourself, there's that feeling of, of beat your chest and... and, and return of motion in respects to to being efficient in what you can do and i definitely don't sort of mirror polish all my knives for you know for whatever reasons and i do try and but i've actually found that that the way i'm finishing my knives now over the years i probably feel like i was probably making the same numbers now of knives as i did several years ago but my fucking standards have risen so what i would have been happy with a while ago you know was good but now i just have to double check everything because i feel you know, I feel like I've raised the bar for myself emotionally. And like you, like we've always talked about, a customer is not going to see half the things I'm, I'm obsessing about. You know, they may not, but if they do, you're covering all the bases and it's just knowing everything kind of goes out there. So yeah, the, you know, you're again getting blades heat treated for you and, and cut out or, or like a lot of those kind of things I would look forward to. But I still, having made a knife or, or helped a, a friend who's a chef, helping him out to sort of make a knife that wasn't going to be made by me, but design process and knowing that so much of it was going to be ground and made in, you know, for him to a specification, not by me, but as a sort of a, it was going to be sold at a fair price and it was going to be a commercial knife. And I, I, I saw this as the ultimate way of actually looking at the contradiction between artisan made from scratch, doing everything myself and outsourcing something to have it made for you. And what I've learned from that was the multiple aspects of the, the, the ups, the downs of what you can control and what you can't. Like no matter what, you know that, you know, once you've sent off your, your plans, your, your laser cut blades are going to come back with that shape. 
and there's only so much manipulation afterwards. And then the grinding quality, how thick, how thin, is the guy having a bad day or the choils wonky or the, you know, is the how many mm-hmm. bends and all these kind of things. What can, and then the finish um, handles the coordination between a CNC dot handle and how that's going to combine itself to the pre-cut blades. And are they all on the same page? Because there's no, there's no going back afterwards. Are the bolsters right. completely contradicting each other? You know, there isn't things like sort of, you know, mirror polishing a spine or checking out hot spots. So it's it was it was fascinating to me to kind of think bigger. And look, hey, down the road, do I ever do this myself? That would be exciting and interesting. But at the moment, I feel I need to control it more myself. and I can't let that go knowing that. And I think it would take years to line up all the ducks in a row to outsource anything like that. And sometimes it is just easier knowing that god as as wayward as i am what i think is sexy and wonderful now is going to change um another year or two down the road but yet you've committed because you have you know 150 blanks and you have them whatever you, you know you're already in bed with so much so i think it was the learning curve so how much you you kind of outsource and how much you do and how efficient it is but it is fascinating to take that learning curve and put it back into what i should focus on myself to always make my life stand out I, I, the both of you, Noah and Fingal, both of you are, have a, a similarity in terms of you both do a lot of volume for for a you know for a custom knife maker Not for a one person show for a I one person so. show. Yeah. You, uh, Noah, you do a you pull you pull you put out a lot, and you also put out awesome content. Um, it is interesting to me that the both of you. I mean, who cares? Sans, you, you both have figured out. Both of you have figured out how to do a beautiful belt finish, and I, and I and I wonder if that is part of those little efficiencies that allow you to grow as a business, where you can not have to spend the hour we spend or hour and twenty minutes up per knife on hand sanding and stuff like yeah. that. It's those efficiencies for you, for you, Noah. I mean, how do you feel about those? you know, efficiencies that you've done to get yourself to be more productive. I guess, I guess the way that I look at it is that I'm, I'm restricted in time uh, based on price point, right? So, so if I have a model that typically sells for, you know, let's say $450, I'm not going to hand sand it because if I hand sand it, I have to charge more. So it's kind of like there are certain standards that I have to kind of apply to each price point and that's and that's based you know that's going to kind of control how much time i spend on any given knife um i think there was like a question on on, on knife talk like a, a week or two ago how do you know when you're done how do you know when a knife is good yeah, enough or something enough? like yeah, that right? right and i think it's like well what standards do you apply to it and how much are you selling it for because if you're selling it for 150 bucks it's a very very different standard than if you're selling it for 1500 bucks and a lot more time is going to be spent on it. So like things like a belt finish, I wouldn't do a belt finish on a $1,500 knife. I mean, I might be able to get away with it, but part of me feels like I should be putting more time into justify the price point. And, and so upgrading features like, you know, polishing a, polishing a spine and a choil and things like that are going to kind of go along with it. But like a belt finish is a great, great way to do a utilitarian and attractive finish um, on a knife that you're going to, you know, price at sort of like a more entry price point. Yeah, but I've talked to a lot of knife makers. I know how hard I do. I have a hard time with the belt finish. Like my belt finishes are still actually the best belt finish I've done is when I was with Tomer and he, I was using some of his steel. Hmm. Like I, that, for some reason I've been having, I have nothing but trouble with belt finishes. And I hmm. keep trying to do them and oh, stuff like that. Of it's all more, the steels, of all the steels I've worked with, 
I can see the contradiction between some of them being an absolute pain in the ass to work with and the ones that finish out. I mean, there is definitely a choice of steel and, and how well you can finish it off. But yeah, that's all, yeah. that also becomes part of the efficiency. Like, I can belt finish AEBL way better by a mile than mm-hmm. I can belt finish 440C. I worked with Magna Cut recently, and I've also done it with 4V and a few other steels like that. And it was actually next to impossible right. to to that. Now, the the thing is, is that with a large chef knife I'm talking about, because I don't want to knock any of these steels, what I'm kind of getting at is that a wide, very large chef knife and your small 2 by 72 kind of surface area, it only takes the littlest of, of inconsistencies to, to show up. Um, and, you know, all the scotch bright belts in the world aren't going to help that one. Right. So then the question becomes, does that material justify the amount of time it takes to work? Is there enough of a demand for it, right? Mm. Like D2 or, I mean, these, some of these steels that are notoriously hard to like get a good finish on. There's no point in me using a steel like that because there's going to be so much more work going into just getting it to the same level of finish as AEBL or something like that. Magna Cut may be different. I mean, I don't know. There is a demand for it and it's a hot steel mm. right now. So so maybe it's worth putting in the time oh, there's, and there's then not charging a little bit can. more for it, right? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, like, there's no knocking what the blade is capable of. Like we're just literally right. talking about one small element of it, which is the polishing. And well, one yeah, of the things all, that's yeah. inter- edge retention usually ties in very heavily with with um how easy the belt is to to, to how the or how easy the blade is to finish and, and abrasion resistance yeah because like literally you can actually feel a brand new belt skipping off it when it comes to the polishing stage i mean it can grind beautifully in the beginning but as soon as you get down to the lower grits it just feels like is this Skates. already knackered <laughs> right well, that I mean, that's part of this whole idea of the, the, the business decisions, because I mean, I've been fooling around lately. I've gave, I had a, such a hell of a time with AEBL a few years ago that I was like, forget it, I'm not using it anymore. I, I can't heat treat it. If I can't heat treat it, I can't sell it. And then um, I kind of worked some things out. I figured some things out. P.S. If you go get the new book, for, uh, if you get the the book. Um, uh, knife engineering. He has recipes for you guys. Can stop, listeners. You can stop asking recipes. Go get yourself. A, a, go get yourself. Fuck it. Go get yourself a, a copy of uh, Knife Engineering by Dr. Larry Thomas. You know where you can get it. You can get it at, at Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is one shop stop for knife makers. They got steels, belts, handles, materials, tools, forges, kilns, and many more. And they're Canadian distributor combat abrasives. And they're selling Rhino Wet and Rhino Stick and all that stuff. So go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. And P.S. Maritime Knife Supply just has done this amazing thing. And I just wanted to read this. Um, Lawrence Lake of Maritime Knife Supply has started a, um, a scholarship for the New England School of Metalwork. And if you, uh, he created a scholarship for a two-week ABS intro class to get young makers uh, interested in forging and blacksmithing, bladesmithing from 16 to 30. It includes funds for travel and accommodations. If you go to Maritime Knife Supply, you can go look at his link tree and you can, you know, get involved. He's a, Lawrence has been amazing and, um, you know, he's been a a really big force in the knife making community. But back to, you know, um, so go get support Maritime Knife Supply because he's supporting a lot of great things, including the New England School of Metalwork. Um, the, the, uh, the concept of the concept of that, that efficiency in your business, you know, design decisions back to, back to what I was saying is I, 
recently got back into AEBL and I'm been, been heat treating it and having good experiences, heat treating it and having good experiences to the point where I'm going to swap out to AEBL in the new year because number one, nice. it's easier to work with. Yeah. I can get just, I've been using, I made an AEBL knife that I've been ha- have using at home and I've been using it every day and it's it's working great. It's in, it's cheaper than 440C. It's easier to work with than 440C. So that is part of the de- design decision is the efficiency of the material and my labor in order, is that affect the design and how we look at us as a business? Yeah, I think that's a good move. I, I mean, I'm surprised you had bad luck with AEBL when you first tried it out. I mean, it, it to me, it, it seems like it's been nothing but, you know, easy to work with, easy to heat treat, but um, I don't know I also might have my, my thermal coupler at the time might have been off, but what happened was, and, and this is actually before Fingal came on, uh, Noah and I were talking about this and it has to do with, you know, what your, 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 your fails that you were talking about. Yeah. The idea that like I heat treated five of them and then they all, they, I could bend them all. Ooh, the Austinite okay. wasn't converting over to Martinsite. Yeah. And it made me think like, I obviously don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And, and it was like you, you spiral down from I'm the knife maker and I make custom knives to I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing at all. <laughs> yeah, no, there's fun having a Rockwell tester and these things that can put you at ease because I, I felt for so many years that I had bad juju and bad luck with um, high carbon steels. I bought a large amount of 52100 and I just, everything was going wrong. I, th- I thought there was, you know, the the pattern and the steels afterwards the mill uh what's what's it called when you can see the um the mill scale the, not the mill scale but there's from the milling process it leaves the sort of a, a ghost pattern through the it almost looks like um woots sort of type oh, carbide banding yeah exact carbide banding thank you so a lot of these things i was trying to to get on top of you know i was overthinking all these things i mean in many ways you can embrace them but i was seeing it as a flaw and it actually wasn't anything to do with me. Of course, it was the steel and and typically I'm blaming something else. But yeah, <laughs> the, the steel, yeah. the steel did actually have alloy banding, and it was. And I mean, these were my early stages of actually thanks to Morocco and everybody else who helped me out at the time, trying to find loopholes and how to reduce the alloy banding and how to work with you know and bring it round. And and it was, you know, that was those kind of things where. I I I felt I think that pushed me more and very quickly to stainless steel um, blades, and um, and I I think I actually fell in love you know with the consistency and I've actually never really kind of feel like I've screwed up stainless steel because of the higher temperatures and everything else like that following a certain formula, um, and so I actually have always every so often a, a high carbon blade will fail me but very rarely will a stainless steel blade fail me. Why do you think that is? Um, I think that maybe my even heat kilns are <laughs> very well kind of they, they, they work beautifully well um, on a consistent level of if you if you take good data if you take a good a good heat treating um, program and follow it and then do use cryo and everything else like that afterwards um, you know the worst things you have to deal with are maybe a bit of warping or whatever else like that due to the the the, the complete changes of high temperatures and tempers and and then cryo on top of everything else. But um, yeah, I think I just know that I could run down and and put it under the the Rockwell tester and find out that we're at that temperature, and then you just have that security. Whereas with I, I had, you know, if you have Simonagashi and Samai steels where the core is in the center, you can't. It's like having faith that the core has worked, and you don't know until you've finished, and maybe you kind of 
run something off the edge of your of your blade um, for the reassurance. You can file test it, but yeah, mm. you can't. Yeah, you can't put it under the Rockwell hardness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. yeah. Oh yeah. So so no, you do a lot of uh, sand my. Yeah. You can't put it. You can't put it under Rockwell tester because I mean it's going to give you the it's going to give you the Rockwell of the outer the outer jacket. Yeah, which is soft, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. But well, you, but you, I mean, I use files anyway. I don't have a Rockwell hardness tester. I wish I did. I just don't have that kind of money. <laughs> but you know, I have the files. You know the the file set that's sure. that's treated at different hardnesses or whatever, which does give you a good idea. And of course, you know, you you can tell whether you've got a good heat treat by other kind of more, I guess, uh, imprecise methods, but it can mean, still add up to a good picture. Like well, ch- you know, by it. doing a snap test and checking your grain size, for instance, um by you know doing the the brass rod test and seeing is you know is your edge rolling or is it chipping or you know things like that just getting a general sense but yeah it's not giving you as precise a measurement it would be nice it would be nice to have a rockwell hardness yeah. tester i, I mean I, I, I learned with tekafu steel for example which would which would be probably one of the the more available sort of stainless steel sumanagashis like they will actually tell you the hardness of the outside lamination which will be it'll be something like 34 rockwell but and as long as that's gone up from something else, then the core should be playing ball as ah, well. That's so there, there should be a little bit of an adjustment on the on the on the on the clouding as well. But yeah, it, it's it's um it's that reassurance because I have you know we've all I mean I have definitely had a, you know a couple of blades that I put out into the world thinking everything was was cozy, and I think it was the carbon steel ones have always been the the ones I've I've kind of fought with. Do you think that because you're you're the stainless is you're usually quenching stainless full mm. thickness? Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's there's I'm, I'm, well actually I, everything I'm kind of nearly doing because so much of it is is grindstock removal. I don't do any forging, um, but the yeah no I, I the the interesting things to me were were like. I was wondering, remember you were talking about how much the blades were still moving for you, like ABL in your earlier version of that. Was that in yeah. the earlier stages of heat treating or was it like the day after? That was, that was well, it, what happened was I heat treated a pile of them. I could flex them and they wouldn't flex back and yeah. they were full thickness. But that was in the and same then, day? Was that like kind of after same heat day, yeah. Same day, same day. You see, and I've, then, I've, 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 have you ever noticed how long you can adjust a blade post heat treating with stainless steel compared to carbon steel, which will suddenly snap with you after 13 seconds? But like stainless steel will, or maybe it was back in the days of ABL, I just realized I could just take it easy. I mean, really no problems. This is heat treated, take it out, fix it, straighten it, fix it. And it was only really, really? that the, the cryo stage for me was, was when things locked in. Cause, um, so, and thanks to Devin, uh, or thanks to, to, to Dr. Laren, like we, we, you know, we, I, I, I brought my cryo face much closer to the heat treating phase. I used to wait an hour or so, um, or more, sometimes three hours, I think. And at that stage, it was probably pointless for me to put them into cryo after three or so hours, you know, because I was doing batches of heat treating. I'd heat treat them all and then put them all in together. But uh, yeah, I, I honestly feel for most of the steels I've worked with that it's I've got minutes of farting around as much as I want to adjust them and I can get them perfectly straight and then I'll put them into cryo and they'll come out still like bananas. <laughs> Are they still hot when you're doing this? Like, so you're taking it no, out of the kiln, you're popping no. it between well, stage, your plates. It, you're probably, I mean, in many like cases. Like room temperature I'm, almost. I'm holding them in my hands. No gloves. No kidding. I haven't yeah. tried that. Yeah, yeah. I try that. I just out of curiosity, because I tell you, that was what, when I, what happened was I was having a hard time with the uh, AEBL. I called up the New Jersey Steel Baron, because mm. that's who I got it from. And yeah. I, I got on the Aldo. phone with Aldo. And Aldo said, uh, go get yourself a, 
you got yourself some liquid nitrogen or get some, you know, get the uh, dry ice and isopropyl alcohol or whatever. And I was surprised. I went out. I got. I had a doer. I got a doer, mm-hmm. and I got it filled up. And then I put it in. I was surprised, and it transformed it. it. I mean, the cryo really brought the. I guess. I guess it converts the austenite, the the unretained austenite yeah. into martensite, and it was amazing because I. I mean, it was like. I mean, I literally, you know, between heat treating to cryo was a few hours, and mm-hmm. I was amazed at how much of a difference that cryo was. Um, how long when you, I mean, do you do cryo Noah? Yeah. Yeah. For all stainless. Yeah. Although I haven't, I haven't tried cryo for like, you know, high carbon. I've heard that you can get good results or at least, you know, worthwhile results, but I haven't done it. We were talking about this, uh, I think just before the show, but, um, I've used cryo on, on, it was some high carbon cord Damascus or San Mai. Um, and, uh, they all split on me and it's, it's actually, (laughs) it's not the cryo that does it. You know, post heat treat comes out into cryo. If you put them into the kiln for tempering after the cryo too quickly, they twink and they split right down the core. And I have. Oh, I so have when you say banana, you mean it actually? Did I say banana? Maybe I got that wrong. No, what I meant to say is that they all kind of when yeah when I split like a banana, like you, you're peeling back. I, I suppose. Oh, it, what's, I what's, what's, yeah. a, what's a better? Yeah, yeah. What's a better yeah. explanation? No, that's good. Oh, that's no, good. That's it's good. good. No, it's I, good. I, I, yeah, I just whenever I think banana for some reason I just think warping, but but no, that makes yeah, sense. That, uh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I think like that too. Banana. Bananas come at us from every angle when it comes to knife making, but the these ones were splitting open and sort of curling back like some sort of leaf opening Oof. in spring i don't know it was Oof. but it was um and i it actually i hadn't happened for years and i'd forgotten about it and just recently i was i was heat treating some um sg2 cord san mai and um about six or so blades and i was getting late to go home and you know when you push to the wire anyway and the frost was still on half of the blade you know as i was putting them on into the into the kiln for a 250 centigrade temper and uh oh. i woke up the next day and kind of came in and opened the door and it would actually the spring was so violent it sort of bent the bars of the 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 rack that holds the um the the blades upright in in, in the in the kiln <laughs> so you just you should have put them in a bucket of water or something before you stuck them in the oven just to you're probably right yeah if yeah. If, I, if you accelerate it so. yeah, I, yeah. That, that's true and i i love those i always kind of i always pull, hold back from kind of sending messages to, to to knife steel nerds to you know constantly those little things about when you can take a shortcut like like that he not must that get it's a not, lot of messages i'd say so he's answered a lot of them for me which is really kind of him but um yeah yeah the yeah you're you're right that there is that there is that use of water to kind of things but you get this in your head don't you like you know you, you're kind of thinking like um forged in fire someone's going to shout at you if you put your blade into the into water after tempering you can kind yes. of picture you can picture a thousand people going oh <laughs> yeah Speak. I mean, we had Laren on, and Laren said that if you temper a knife, actually, I was talking mm. back once again. Uh, Bob Rankin, uh, I had talked to him years ago, and he says that he said that he. I'm pretty sure it's Bob. Bob, don't mm. get mad if I said it wasn't you. But after you temper, you can quench your knives yeah. after the temper if you hurry up. And we had Laren Thomas on, and Laren says it doesn't hurt. Yeah, and it, it doesn't make a difference if you if you're pulling your knives out of a temper and then put them in water just to get it get it going fast. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't make a difference. No, I think the, 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 the crime is post heat treating, good. isn't it? Post heat treating, when you do your first yeah. temper, if you need to like, oh no, hustle, that's hustle, temper. Hustle. But if, if you do it, if you do it with a high carbon steel blade post heat treat, I think that's the one that that would probably 
Well, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, I'm no, wrong. no. Temper, I, temper. You're right with temper, but if it was a heat treat, I think oh, that, that's yeah. more violent. So Noah, you do a lot of uh, sand mai. Do you do when you when you're working with the sand mai? Do you you heat treat your knives full thickness, or how do you do the sand mai? Yeah, I mean, I've tried different things with sand mai, and to be honest, like when I started. I was trying to forge every blade, you know, to profile and all this kind of stuff, just because I thought that was like what you're supposed to do. And of course, it disrupts the layers. And so I, what I started doing was, I realized I was getting the best, like nicest sandmai pattern results from basically just making a sandmai billet and stock removing a knife out of it. Yeah. And and it it felt almost like I was cheating somehow, like I was like cutting some yeah. step that I wasn't supposed to be doing. But it just made for better knives. And so yeah, I'll make billets of knives. I'll use drawing dies to put that nice little sawtooth pattern into them. And then I'll get them to full thickness, which is usually just a little over one eighth. And cause they always end up having a ton of thick scale, like 410 builds up this really thick, nasty scale on it. So I have to try to account for that when I'm getting it down to final thickness. Um, but yeah, so, and then I'll, I'll heat treat it like that. I, I, I'm not forging in bevels and things like that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are advantages and disadvantages, but like, you know, it, in my, in my experience with it, the knives always look best. If I just make the billet stock, remove the blade from it, heat, heat treat full thickness, and then just start grinding. I've only made sand. I've only made sand my well. I had, I had a sand my that was a disaster, and the only one that I've ever had that worked. Isaiah Schroeder sent me a bar of of sand my that he had made. This is now we're talking seven years, six seven years ago. Cool. And I was terrified because I didn't know what to do. I would imagine how hard is it if you don't use a roller or something like that? How do you make sure that your core is in the middle? Yeah, it's that's always the, the the way that it goes sideways for me, pretty much. It's either that or I accidentally pinch like one of the blades that was in that disastrous batch from this week was uh I pinched it I pinched it too thin. Now it's like I'm if you're using four ten and in this case it was eighty C R V two for the core, the eighty C R V two is moving faster than the jacket, right? Ah. So it's kinda like an ice cream sandwich. Yeah. You know, where you okay. got like the cookie yeah, yeah. on the outside. So you take a bite and it squishes the middle more than it moves the outside. And so if you pinch it, you know, between the drawing die and the drawing die, you're trying to get some length and, and, and give it to that pattern. If there's like, for instance, a big chunk of scale that happens to be like built up on just one side of the billet, it's going to actually move the core out of center. Mm-hmm. Or it could actually just squeeze the core so much that when you go to heat treat, there isn't enough core material and all the carbon migrates out of it. So you end up with a soft spot along the cutting edge. And that's what happened to one of those knives that was in this week's batch. So it's just that little things like that, like you just make the core just a little too thin and you're screwed because you you are unless you're using nickel or or some kind of like barrier layer between your jacket and your core you are losing a little bit of the carbon at least where that you know boundary is between those two materials and so yeah too thin of a core seems to be like that that or or if I'm doing something where I'm forging it if you're not like paying attention to how much you're forging I always seem to hit it more on one side, that's like the more comfortable side. You know how like when you're forging a blade and sometimes if you're forging in bevels, you have to like reach over the spine to hit the bevel and it's kind of hot and it's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always, that's always the side that gets hit less because it's more, it's more easy to forge, you know, where you're holding the blade and the tongs and the, and the edge is, is pointing to the right, like towards your swinging arm. Um, and so then I always end up removing the jacket 
more from that side. So there are things you can do when you're grinding. I mean, one of the things that I realized is you don't just like scribe your center line on your blank and just go to town. You you have to oh, yeah, actually yeah. find the middle first, right? So when you're like breaking your 45 degree angles before you actually start doing the, the real grinding work, make sure you center your core at that point when you still have all that thickness and then grind, you know, grind away the sides to that that edge that you've established where your actual core is, even if it's not entirely centered on your billet, you can still make it work. Right. Yeah, That, is, that makes I mean, a lot if, of sense. If, if you do have cool. your profile on the blade and, and you, you do almost sort of use a very fine grit and, and define and etch the edge of the knife before you start grinding, you will see their vulnerabilities, your areas where you may yeah. you know, start to pinch. Oh yeah. Out right anything. away. So, you yeah. can see it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, at least, you know, if you're going to be fighting a losing battle or not, or you can change the length of your blade to match it. I, That's right. I, have a, I have a question in regards to when you were saying the forging. Now, you were saying that, uh, like, I love the ice cream sandwich reference because mm. I totally understand it. You push the ice cream sandwich and the, uh, the ice cream moves and the, and, the, and the cookie stays where it is. Right. Is some of the reason behind that because of the steel or is it because, you know, when you're using hydraulic presses or power hammers or stuff like that, your dyes are heat sinks. Yeah, they're cooling the outside. So are they cooling down the jacket and they're just making it harder for the jacket to move and then the inside just going to move better? Or is it the the outer steel is usually harder than the inner core? I think, and my understanding is it's it's both. It's both. So especially if you're like using flat dyes on your press, even if you're using a material that's soft, like for instance wrought iron like wrought iron is is i think i'm pretty sure wrought iron if you get it to the right temperature is going to be moving faster or at least the same speed as the core material but 410 being stainless tends to move less at the same temperature right than the core so i think so i think for sure the jacket material that you choose has a has an effect um and like for instance nickel when you're using pure nickel it hardly moves at all like if you're if you're doing like a lot of aggressive moving, you can actually have the nickel kind of like run out at the end of the billet because it just <laughs> didn't stretch all the way to the end. Um, so yeah, it depends on the it depends on what the material uh, you know recipe is. Like it's always good to try to choose materials for the core and the jacket that are going to move simpatico. You know, like mm, that yeah. won't be out of sync with each other. Yeah, like would fifty two one hundred be be a tougher core than eighty CRV? I think so. I've only done, so I've done a couple of sand mines with fifty two one hundred, and they were with um, wrought iron as mm. a, as a jacket. So I don't know, like for instance, how fifty two one hundred would play with four ten as a jacket. I, I, I oh, but know. but roughly speaking, you have seen cores behave differently. It's, the cores will not it, it, as a high carbon or or are, are they nearly always high carbon cores you're using, or do you actually have stainless they, cores as well? I haven't done a stainless core. I've done I've done Damascus core. Um, but oh, yeah, man, I've used 52100. I've used 1084. I've used 1095, things like that. 1084 seems to move in general, like as you know, easier, right? It's a little mm-hmm. easier to move than 52100. 52100 can be a bit of a bear to, to forge. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, I, I think it does depend on your choice of, of materials overall. Uh, and I think maybe that's why people tend to kind of stick with something once it works, you know, like yeah. you, once you find a good combo that you like and you're getting good results with and just you know, yeah. keep using it. When did you start working with sand mics? I know you do a lot of sand mic. When did, when did you start kind of working with them? Where did you learn how to I think I it? went through a period of sand mic and I think I'm near the end of it. 
<laughs> oh, really? You're sick of it. You've had well, it. Well, you know, I mean, look, part of the appeal of this whole thing is learning new things, right? I mean, I'm, I'm like a, I'm addicted to just, you know, learning new techniques and skills. And so Sanmai was, when I learned it, the most exciting and fascinating thing to me. And I, I just wanted to do Sanmai, Sanmai, Sanmai. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I, I'll still do it. It's just it doesn't like thrill me quite the same way. It's been exciting to do things like San Mai with an integral bolster. Like that's like got its own challenges. I was going to ask. About oh, that. Wow, yeah, yeah, that's fun. Um, and and you know my problem is sometimes I I don't stick around long enough to attain like mastery. You know, like I'll get that sort of I got this. I think I got this. I understand. Okay, next move on to the next exciting shiny object. Um, I've been doing San Mai for I guess two years now. Um, I think I don't know if you've heard of this guy Jeremy Yell Yell's Cutler. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So of Jeremy Jeremy lives out near me, and he studied a lot with Christoph Derringer, who's a master smith and who who lives not too far from me. And I think he got some information from Christoph about how to do sand my first, and he had tried a few billets, and then he was spending time in my shop, and I was kind of helping him with grinding and heat treating stainless, and so he was showing me some stuff about uh, sand my, and we made a couple of billets together, and I think that was two years ago now that was the first time i mean it helps to have someone it's like like forge welding in general is one of those things that you benefit a lot from just watching somebody actually do it right in front of you it's kind of like it's kind of like you need someone to prove to you that this can actually be done and 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 it's not that you know magical actually that it's um anyway so so yeah it's been about two years since I've been doing the San Mai and playing around with different stuff and i like it but i i want to do mosaic damascus that's where that's where i'm that's where I'm headed, man. That's that's really that's, yeah. Cool. That's the thing cool. that excites me the most right now. I'm I'm going to um, a workshop actually at the New England School of Metalwork. Have you heard of Jason Morrissey? Of course, oh, yeah. Jesus Christ! Okay. Of course. Well, I don't know. See, I, I mean, talk uh, you're to talking about who the are best side the knife world. So, I, like, I'm like, you probably don't know who this is, but yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. That whole that whole Jason Morrissey, Nick Anger, Mareko, they're all hanging out. They're mm-hmm. all. I mean, it's like, and, and and Nick Nick Rossi, obviously. Yeah, Jason Morrissey's a monster. Yeah, John, he, in terms of pattern welded steel, and his style is so different, right? I mean, like everybody's doing these, 
well, I mean, not everybody, but it's, you know, the, the, the four way, for instance, and like the explosion patterns and, and using everything based off of like W's is, is becoming very common in a way. It's like, it's becoming the, the way to do it. But then you look at Jason Morrissey's work and he's got like these weird gears and these weird like geometric patterns. You're like, how the hell did he do that? And so I think he, he doesn't actually do a lot of four way stuff. He does this like additive thing. He works in a different format, so I'm super. I'm taking a I'm taking a, a one week advanced uh, mosaic class with him at New England School of Metalwork in, in November. So I'm like so excited. So Sounds excited wonderful. I'm, I'm he jealous. also does he also does something where he like he'll float something in the middle of a knife. Like I yes. know that he did a couple knives with uh, Nick Rossi and Nick Anger, and he was like they were like making these beautiful knives, and they're just float. There's sitting this in a pool of black. It's floating. Yeah, yeah, it's this floating pattern, and it's just like God damn That's that guy so knows cool. what the. Yeah, it is so cool. Yeah. And that's what makes you want to do it. And it's yeah. like, you know, guys like him, I know he did something where they made like a picket fence and stuff like that. And it wasn't like Steve Schwarz or Canister Damascus with, with all these little intricate parts put in. It was like, you know, I don't know how he does it. Be honest I don't know either. I'm hoping to learn. I'm hoping to figure it out. If he's going to share all of his secrets, I don't know. Yeah, you got to get them floaters. That's the that's gonna be the next move. <laughs> so cool, dude. Those the floaters are like the move. You do an integral. You do a, you do them floaters, boy. You got something to sell. You yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of a very different floater. What's a floater? What, what you mean, like a, like a, that's a the drink turd, the turd that won't go down yeah. the, the the toilet. Oh, see, I'm thinking about <laughs> I'm thinking about like you know you get a nice drink and then you have a floater of another drink on top. I didn't realize you guys were no, this, such this bottom one you got to flush two or three Filthy times. Mind. Like that's a floater. Yeah, I mean now we're talking knife talk. You know, <laughs> we go. have to rebel so, now. We we got far too serious too soon. Then it's fine. So I mean, so Noah, so that's your new thing. You're gonna be you're gonna be kind of slowly f- drifting away from sand my and then getting into pattern welded stuff that's where i want to go and i mean like i was saying earlier there's this ping ponging back and forth between the guy who's like hey you got to pay the rent dumbass and then the other guy who's like yeah but i just want to have fun so my you know my goal is to to not only learn how to make knives like that but then also to find a way to be able to sell knives like that because it's not Mm. easy you can't just go here's a knife it's three thousand dollars people are like Your, your knives up until now have been, you know, a third that price. Like what, right. what's going on here? And so um, being able to make something and then being able to make money making something doesn't always line up the way that you hope it will. So um, I want to move in that direction, but it's going to be like, it's going to be like, you know, changing course on a big ship. You know, it's going to be like yeah. a, a gradual turn. Well, but you can, you can always so- have a speedboat on the back of your large cruiser. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that that kind of brings me to something that the both of you you don't. I don't think that either one of you take custom orders. And try to avoid it. Try to go avoid ahead, it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go. I was somebody made out of big ugh. Oh, uh, that's head. me. It's yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I'm always fighting it. Like I, I want to say no. I would love to say no, and then I usually end up saying yes. If I, if you I, if you were going to go down the road of actually making one of these three thousand euro knives, and it was going to be mosaic Damascus and everything, and that's like that. Where would you draw the line? I mean, you, you can choose the pattern, but okay, let let the guy who's paying for this custom pattern choose the wood or whatever else like that, that element of of thing. Like for me, I'd have one fear, which yeah. is the, 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 the paranoia of if it doesn't go wrong, you know, I'm not pleasing somebody else. Whereas if I'm making it for me and then hopefully somebody out there will buy it, like that, that's my worst part of, of having a bespoke order. Sure. I think my favorite custom orders are the ones that put me into that scary zone, though, Hmm. because they're the ones that are it's like the project you want to do, but 
doing it on spec would be kind of risky because you're not sure your market would, you know, go for it. But then somebody comes along and says, hey, I mean, would you be willing to make something like this? And you think that's scary. And I know it's going to push me, uh, but it's going to allow me to learn something that I haven't done before and try something I haven't done before. And yeah, there's like all that expectation concern that you have, you know, but but at the same time, I feel like that's that there's a place for that type of project in in my mm-hmm. workflow. It's more when somebody's like, hey, you know, that handle or that knife that you that you posted yesterday. Can I have that? But with but with this handle, that's the type of order that I was like, ah, I really don't want to do that. I don't like repeating myself if I can avoid it. Well, for me, we had a great August, great August. Congratulations. And September was, September was, and not just for me, but a lot of people, September was not good. Mm. And I could, I can't explain it. We've had conversations where, I mean, not terrible, but not, I mean, August was like a, was crazy. September wasn't great and October wasn't awesome either. And, And to the point where everything's okay, but I, you know, I, called up and called up the office and I said, you know, if you can ring up some custom orders, if somebody wants to, if somebody has a custom order, shake that tree. And it was like, I did it because it was like, you know, we got to make it happen, Hmm. you know? And it was like, I was grateful for those, for those custom orders. I I mean, obviously some of them I didn't want to do, but at the same time it was like, time to make the donuts. But when you know that something like Christmas is around the corner where you could sell a turd wrapped in tinfoil, you know, like everything you make. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. But then this, would you but, would you not re- like? There's that point where it is interesting, isn't it? Like I, I'll always know that if I'm going through my list and there's several emails haven't even been replied to, you're kind of thinking, oh god, is it all going to hell? But it's not. That's just how how it works. But mm. I don't invest in equipment. I'm investing in steel. I'm investing in G10. I'm investing in employees. Mm. So, like, I don't really. I, I know that. Yes, I know we're hitting November, and once November hits, the Christmas orders are going to start to come. But I, I kind of want to be in a position of being. Um, I want to be in a good position leading up to the Christmas season. Well, here, so, here like, you go. This, if you're talking and going back to the whole thing about it's not a perishable product. If you look at everything you've made as 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 an asset that you're sitting on, now it's fun to move those and have that as money in. The bank account but then at the same time as, as an efficiency of just making as many knives as possible knowing that they're, you're, you're proud of them and they'll all work that, that just keep driving on because if you ever did just put that up on your website and just let people know I'm sure they would just go I mean well sometimes they do and sometimes they don't you know yeah. and, and it's 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 great when they do and I mean a lot of it is we, we want passive sales too like I don't want to have to like do a hardcore press on social media and newsletters especially when my my uh, I'll tell you a funny story so I uh, I have a, my business partner and Allison work for for fader knives and we have these meetings and stuff like that before I went to maker camp um, the guy they said well we have to do a news newsletter did you have a quote or I said just do whatever the fuck you want well, that was a huge mistake because because they all of a sudden they fooled around, which they had a good time, and I'm not mad about it. It was funny, but then they, in the in the newsletter they they put this picture of uh, uh, half naked Alex Jones <laughs> sitting on the kitchen table, and I'm just like starting to get. I mean, like, and it was like I don't know, is, is that kind of? A, I mean, obviously it was funny, and I don't care honestly. <laughs> is that on but brand? The, 
Well, I mean, part of it was just like, part of me was just like, well, that's the last time I say just do whatever the fuck you want. But at the same time, it was just like, it gives people a reason to get on the newsletter because you don't know what the hell is going to happen. I might go away and then they're going to put on like half naked pictures of Alex Jones in the newsletter. Well, hopefully you. Which they did. <laughs> hopefully put half which naked pictures did. of you under the newsletter. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what's worse, I mean, frankly. But, but, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm not like Josh Smith of Montana Knife Company where I can post something, you know, I have, uh, you know, 100 knives available and they're gone in six seconds. I'm not that, I'm not that point. I mean, it's still no. an expensive per, I mean, even $400, $500 is just a big ask. Oh, yeah, no, I'm people. taking back what I said earlier on. I mean, yeah, we all know that there's, there's times, you know, not everything will always sell. And, right. And, and like, you'll always live with that sort of feeling in your stomach prior to any kind of event that you're going to go. I mean, like the Damasteel one that's coming up for me, like there's, there's a horrible feeling of, have I made too many or what's the pricing oh, I put on sake. them and all that kind of stuff. No, no, it's sincerely because Dude, you sell them you every year, you oh, yeah, move but, everything but how, in five how, minutes how, and you're drunk in 10. Yeah. But how terrible will it be if we have a different conversation where I'm sort of like tail between my legs because <laughs> you know, they're all still there well, and it could very well happen. No, oh, Hey, look, it, it, it's just one of those things. And I, I, I feel like we need to have that keeping us in check in, in some ways. Um, you know, there is a modesty that's needed. Nobody likes anybody who's who's too bloody loud or, or proud of them, you know, and, and vulgar about, about any form of success. And you should be humbled and it needs to happen to you to, to keep raising your bar. But um, no, I, I am interested and, and, and back to Noah, like on that whole thing of, of, you know, that point of making very high-end knives or, or giving yourself a challenge to kind of grow and push yourself. Um, there's something beautiful about that. And I think that that's something about how you can run both sides. Cause it's, it, it is nerve wracking making high end knives. You are constantly going over, sure. you're constantly making sure. sure they're perfect and you're constantly doing everything else. Whereas if you're selling 200 and you know, 80 euro sort of knives, 300 euro knives out at, and they're at a level that you're happy with, you know, there's, there's, it, it's emotionally sometimes less taxing. I always feel like something that goes Absolutely. out there, thousand year knives come with thousand year problems. You know, that great, That's, that great, beautiful quote. And that, Jared Thatcher said that to me, but Boot Hill Blades used to say $1,500 knives have $1,500 problems. Yeah, yeah, right. it's true. And I think that you, you, even if those problems don't exist, you're going to go looking for those problems. <laughs> you know? Right. I had a humbling experience recently. I, so I had an opportunity to make some knives to try to get a relationship going with a dealer. I won't say who, but because um, it's still kind of in the works. So the, the goal was make the two best goddamn knives you've ever made in your life. And I sat on that for a while because yeah. it was just like the, the, the pressure started to kind of choke me. And I was like, you know, the possibilities, of the potential. Anyway, I eventually managed to finish the knives. I was happy with them. I wasn't like... This is, you know, perfect, obviously. I saw there are flaws, although they were like small flaws that I figured, you know, I've never had any, you know, one even notice things like this in the past. Like this is to the standard that I, that I expect of myself. I sent them out. They came back. They came back with some, some notes, let's just say, right? And it was like, fuck, that's not the first impression that I wanted to make. Like I was really excited about putting my best foot forward and uh I, and and you know in the long like when you when you remove your emotional response from it and you just like step back you go wow i just received criticism that i probably have never had 
from anyone. I mean, everyone just says nice things or they say nothing at all, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't actually get any real, like, here's somebody who really knows this stuff telling me, if you want to play this game at this price point, this is what is expected. These are the areas you need to watch out for. These are things that you could do better next time. And these are things that are just not acceptable and you'll have to fix them. Mm. And it's a hard pill to swallow, but holy shit is that valuable information because there's no way I can play in that field unless I have that information. Because otherwise somebody's just going to look at your knife and they're going to go, hmm, nice work. And they're going to walk away and they're not going to tell you all those little things that they saw. Right? Yeah. So... You know, it's good to challenge yourself. It's good to put yourself in this, that like situation. It's humbling. But um, if you want to play in the big leagues, you know, you, you better be ready for it. And I, I realized I wasn't quite ready, but I'll get there. Do you think that the person who sent you those notes, it pained them to write those notes or they were just like, oh, oh no, not Noah, at all. Noah no. fell for the old banana tailpipe. I better tell him. It was, you know what it was? It was, hey, let's all be transparent about this. Um, I really like the work. Here are some things that need to be, you know, that you could do better. And, and, and here's something that you can fix. And, and I'm going to send them back, fix it, send it back to me, and we're on. Were they, so fix- were they fixable? It's not like... Yes, know. they okay. were. Okay. Yeah, luckily. And, and so, you know, he sent them back. I fixed it. I sent them back to him. He said, great. We're good. So it was like, it, you know, it worked out. It was all fine. Um, but it was... It was my sort of like, it was, it was a bit of an eye-opening experience. So like, well, it's not like you can just take a knife and slap $1,500 on it and call it a $1,500 knife. It has to be a $1,500 mm-hmm. knife to merit that price point. Um, and it's not just about aesthetics, you know? It's the whole package. You got to have, I mean, I think the guy must have used a micrometer. Like, I feel really? like they were, oh, just, it, I, was, I was blown away initially because I was thinking, these are things that I see, but no one else can see them. But I was wrong, you know. Mm. Um, anyway, it was, it was it was a very interesting experience, and in the end, everything turned out fine. Um, but uh, you know. so here's here's a question: if if you had for 2023 coming up, you were lined up with the knowledge base you have now to to make nothing but those 1500 euro or 15 you know 1500 right. knives for the entire year. Or you were going to get the exact same profit money turnover and everything else in respect by making $250 or $300 knives. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling these numbers out of the sky. Sure, sure. Would you, would you or, or, or option three, intermittent bounce between them all? I mean, I might be making it too easy now. Which road are you going for? <laughs> Knowing that so they're all going to if sell. If I have only two, if I have only two choices, then my choice is to do... To, to to do the higher end knives that are more challenging. If I can make as much money doing that, mm-hmm. then I'd choose that. But if I have choice, if I have choice number three, yeah, then I'd probably say it's that. It's nice. It's nice to mix it up. It's what I love. Like I love doing something that's extremely fussy and really slow, and then doing something that's really rough and really fast right afterwards. It's See, like yeah. so refreshing. But that comes from your history making guitars. Maybe. Yeah, because your guitar make—I mean, guitar. I mean, if you want to know, Noah was on Full Blast podcast and he talked mm. about guitar making. The guitar making is—I believe it is very similar to the knife making because it is this laborious process that actually has a final outcome that the user sees or hears. Yeah, it's functional. So I would imagine—I would imagine that that comes from the same place. Yeah, I mean, I just really love 
like we were talking before the podcast about scale. I love the scale of knives because you can you can put on you know uh, magnifying whatever glasses, right? And you can like get into the granular kind of detail on these things if you want to. Um, you can do like super fine engraving or whatever. Or you can just have something that like looks pretty rough, but when you kind of hold the silhouette up, the lines are just beautiful. But you know, it's it's quick and and it's like a sketch. It's broad strokes. Um, so I just I think that that's I think it's really good to kind of like release the pressure after a very stressful mm. project with something that you can do practically with your eyes closed. You know, and and, and that's uh, got a quick payoff. I think is the idea. Fingled, what we were talking about was we were trying to figure out what it is that people like about knives and knife making and stuff like that. And mm. we, I, I brought up the topic that scale, as in knives, are approachable in terms of size. They're small. You put it in your hand. Okay. They're small. There's something that you can, you know, subconsciously see in your home or your house or in your pocket for that for that matter. And there is something that there's that intimacy that it's attainable just just for the sheer scale of it. You know, mm. it's small. You know, you talk about a giant sculpture that you can't fit in your house, you know, or something like that. But like a knife, there is something, the scale of it makes it approachable to people. Mm-hmm. And, and the excuse that it, it's, it serves a function as well. Right. Yeah, I love excuse. Nice. <laughs> love the excuse. Love the excuse. Love the do you, excuse. Do you guys think that your knives are being used regularly, like for the most part? Or do you get the sense that people are buying your knives as a kind of collectible item or display item? I mean, I would imagine most people are using your knives, right? Most of your clients. You'd aim for that, wouldn't you? And I, I, yeah, I, I think course. that, you know, you can't help but look... Um, I mean, I wear the. I used to kind of get concerned when I'd see an, one of my knives that looked like it was kind of losing its luster, and I was kind of worried about the quality. And then I suddenly realized, hey, this knife is getting used regularly. Um, mm. And I, I think that what I get more excited about is actually knowing that a knife is being used regularly, or it's 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 one of the the, the core knives that that yeah. you, you see. And that to me is probably more important than somebody having bought my knife in the beginning, because things can look beautiful as whether they actually serve their purpose. Um, so I, I do get excited about seeing on Instagram or wherever else, somebody I know who's got my knife, that's actually, you can see it on the table or the island or the chopping board, or, or it's still on the knife magnet and, and, you know, has a bit of, a bit of character behind it. It's been used. That, that to me is, is, is kind of important. I mean, the dream is to have very high end knives that are not used at all because then they can't break. (laughs) But (laughs) part of me, part of me, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to, um, it's not going to have to be sharp. (laughs) Exactly. That kind of thing of the the back of your head. Um, and, but you know, a high end knife, I, 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 you know, making them to that point of, of skill set where you see some of those really high end knives, you know, you're not going to, you know, take something that has inlays and whatever else on it and use that every day to feed your you know your family on, on the table that is a collector piece and i don't i'm not aiming for that market i i, I don't feel i am I, I know that i'll probably make some some very kind of expensive you know damacore beautiful sort of damasteel sort of knives that are you know you, know you bought but they are still very approachable and solid and serving serving a purpose um, right. But I don't think I'm going to try and ever make one. And I have made knives with materials that I thought were beautiful and stunning. Um, but I always base it on, listen, how is this going to be after any form of abuse of hot, cold, wet, washed multiple times? Um, and that does 
pull me back from using, you know, too extravagant material. That kind of brings me back to what you were talking about before, Noah, in terms of when Fingal asked you if you would, what you would rather make. And when you said, I'd rather, you know, I don't remember, you said more along the lines of, I'd rather make a more expensive, you know, those, those intensely more involved, more involved. I'm the exact opposite. I love, I love the idea of my knives being approachable in terms of the materials, the cost and um, the usability. That's probably the reason why 95% of my knives are stainless steel because I've always felt like my buyer, my customers are first-time knife buyers, first-time custom knife buyers. And I always want to speak very plainly, and I also want to not put them into something that they think that they're supposed to get. You've talked to knife people. They're like, oh, I know all about carbon steel, and they know nothing about it. I don't, I don't try to be anything other than I want you to feel comfortable using this and not be afraid to use it because that's the other thing. Like... I've sold carbon steel knives to people explained about the carbon steel and then they'll still call me up saying, why is it changing color? Mm-hmm. You know, and I just, I perfectly, I, I personally would rather give something that they're not afraid to use, especially with the handle. That's probably one of the reasons why I use high colorful handles mm. because I want it to be a little bit less um, of something scary, you know, something that they would be afraid to use, you know? That's great. I th- yeah. I think my motivation is selfish. Uh, like I think that I'm in a way the reason I want to make those knives is because they're the ones that excite me the most. It's not that's because not selfish. It, well, it's I'm not saying I, what I want to do is make affordable knives that you know people can people can buy and that will you know serve them well, well in their kitchen. I do some of that too. But the thing that really psychs me up is like you know pushing pushing yeah pushing yourself. And, can, you know, can't, can't agree with that. Yeah, yeah that, that's a very valid point. But uh, out of curiosity, Jeff, uh, when you're making these knives, what what grinder do you use to to make these knives on? <laughs> Frankly, what a guy, what a guy. I use, unbelievable, Fingal Ferguson, ladies and gentlemen. I use the Broadbeck Ironworks uh, 2x72 grinder. Uh, they are great, and they make a great 2x72 grinder. They have different attachments and that also work with different grinders. Uh, and if you go to broadbeckironworks.com, they have different packages available. If you put in Knife Talk 200, you're going to get $200 $200 off of the grinder packages, the Max Premium and the Mega. And if you put in Knife Talk 100, you're going to get $100 off their sharpening system, surface grinders, and leather sewing machines. So go to check out broadbeckironworks.com and see what they're up to. And actually, I'm going to have the both of them on full blast in a couple weeks. So we're going to tell, we're going to hear the whole story. We're going to hear the whole story about Broadbeck Ironworks. And they, ha- they offer them in kits. They also offer them fully assembled and they offer them painted. So they are great guys, knife makers making grinders for other knife makers thank you for the setup fingal ferguson <laughs> ladies and gentlemen unbelievable yeah no, they that are was wonderful a, that was a they're wonderful play. guys doing wonderful things that's it there you go look at you look at you worry about me worry about me um well that I, actually go I ahead sorry. i was go ahead. Say, are we gonna answer questions because i'm kind of excited to? about the idea of it i don't know oh, do I, you I want mean, it? we're doing really we well do just, i feel like being on knife talk and not having a chance to answer a question because i'm Dude. like the guy who's driving in my car going like nah this is what you should be doing you know what i mean like while i'm listening to knife talk you I want was, it you got I it answer. you want it you got it ladies and gentlemen if you go for, if, good for you look at you craig now you both are like doing my job it's great <laughs> um if you go follow us on instagram knife talk podcast on instagram you can interact with the show ask questions you can uh, give your tough dilemmas, your listener 
listener feedback. So the first question, you know, I even took my goddamn reading glasses off because I didn't think we were going to do it, get it here. <laughs> so the first question, hey man, can I ask you a question, comes from Legacy Blades. Legacy Blades asks a question for the show. A few episodes back, Craig was talking about styles and how a maker can develop a style to the point where you can see a knife and and know whose it is even before seeing the maker's mark. Mm-hmm. How would you design your how would you define your own styles if someone asked? Is there a terminology that you can define it against or is it just one of those things you know it when you see it? Uh, uh, any tips to guys working on developing their own style? Just some knife philosophy I was thinking about this week. Love the show. Thanks for all the hard work, Jared. So that works for you guys. So how do you define your style and then how do people how do knife makers learn how to get their own style? No. Hmm. Well, I mean, I kind of feel bad now because I feel like I'd like to hear Craig and Morocco answer this one, but um, it's, I don't think it's something that happens overnight. And I think a lot of new makers think that they're supposed to have a defining aspect to their work, like right out of the gate. And so they, they sort of push it a little too much. They try to maybe come up with something that, I mean that's never been done before or something that's maybe like a little outside the norm in hopes that that will define their work. Um, and I think you can't rush it. I think it's just one of those things that is going to come naturally from the things that you like making. First of all, like when I first started making knives, I made a lot of like full tang knives and different styles and different like, tactical this and, you know, sandblasted that. And, and I realized I don't like any of this stuff. I'm going to just let, you know, my, my own tastes guide me here. Hmm. Um, and I think eventually you just kind of get known for doing a certain type of knife and it's probably cause that's the type of knife that, that you like making. Um, you know, you, if you have access to certain materials that are just like easy to come by, well, then you might get known for using those materials. Would you say um, you can kind of get trapped within that? I mean, if you're in a position true. where you sort of make certain knives and the next guy comes along, can I have the same knife, but with this handle? So you're kind of in, 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 in a, in a sort of a loop, a groundhog day. Um, whereas that's true. Yeah. So there's you, you a, there's can a paint yourself to into not a corner. Being too mm. well defined. Yeah. It's good to be versatile as well, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Push your boundaries. But, um, and maybe that goes back to the whole thing of taking custom orders. I mean, in some kind of ways, somebody does maybe force you to do something that you can't do and that you would not have even thought of doing. You know, there is a huge, pos- huge, huge. Yeah. Huge opportunities are missed when you don't take custom orders of things that you don't normally do because you'll end up doing something that you wouldn't have thought you liked. Hmm. It might become part of your style. Yeah, I've for sure. I mean, my my handles changed because I had a customer who had small hands and she wanted something a little bit smaller. And I and I realized when I made it smaller, I liked it a lot more. And it was something that I didn't think that I would need until I was pushed in that direction. You have a baseball bat with a with a (laughs) a little blade at the end. I (laughs) didn't think. I mean, I honestly. I didn't think it mattered. Like I didn't, you know, I was used so many. I didn't think it mattered, and it really did. When that reminds me, to you, Fingal, I mean, your style. You can, I mean, both well, of your styles. The, I the can step pick... in the handle is 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 something, but we, we yeah, that's distinct. Yeah. yeah, and and I actually had I was working multiple styles, and actually kind of said, look, maybe I should focus on just the one sort of thing, and maybe I, I am proud of my little twist and and on what i have going so i I am more in bed with it than i ever have been before i I used to do so many more different handles so but do you know what i'm kind of i'm kind of digging it um and until something better comes along (laughs) that's 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 gonna be my and I, i think you're right like a logo maker's mark something bold like that 
um, the, um, you know, something that you do connect yourself with. I mean, like in, in many cases, embracing color or, or, or anything like you do with your beautiful knives, um, Jeff, you know. But I think, yeah, it's nice to shake that tree and just do something different. What's going to make but, you do that is, is up to yourself. But what's interesting is, is if I took most knife makers that we know, we took, let's take 10 knife makers that we know. Mm -hmm. And then you didn't, all you did was put the exact silhouette of their knife on a on a lineup on a piece of paper oh there you go this, you could, this should be can we actually you could, put that up as a quiz sometime i wonder if you could, could, could do it yeah, it should. would be it would be easy like yours would be easy i think that i think i can pick out noah's knife in a in a in a lineup i could think i I, th I honestly feel like people have this very every knife maker has this well a lot of knife makers especially culinary guys you have a distinct fingerprint that is it's you know it when you see it mm-hmm and I wonder how that happens. I wonder how that happens. Is it because you take templates and then you're constantly using the same templates and then you're changing the templates a little bit? Or you're, well, I, I just, I like, well, look, the, we, nice. we're also not you talking about the, the co-couture of, of knife making that happens as well. There is fads, like the fat carbons and the, the mm. whatever material that comes along that you're actually seeing in a wave, the, the hybrid handle kind of wave. The, you know, there is things that will come along that you'll get in and out of, you know, out of bed no, but with. people... But at the same time as you, with most, a lot of knife makers who've been doing it for a while, mm. you can pick out their style. Yeah. You can pick out their, Nick Anger, perfect example. I mean, I can, sure. I can list off a pile of names of knife makers that you can, when you see their knife, you know who it is and you don't even have that, you don't even need that much material and, or uh, information. And it is something that is this very, very unconscious fingerprint that you maybe you can't explain and i think that there's a lot of knife makers young knife makers now who are looking to figure out how do i do that and I, it obviously is time and time and energy time yeah mm. i mean make knives for th three or four years and then it'll kind of start to click you'll figure out you've, you'll have tried all the novel things that you know were one-offs and and you'll see that there's a consistent sort of theme and then you just kind of embrace it. And, and also, I think it's worth saying that it's hard to see your own work through the eyes of other people. It's like, for instance, I really have a hard time believing that my, my knives have a signature style or a distinctive style. But maybe other people see, you know, more of a connective tissue between my work than I do because I see each one as being sort of different. Um, so it may be that you've already developed somewhat of a style and you just need someone else to point that out to you mm, but also form and function again if we are talking about culinary especially there is a thing of of just putting something on there for the sake of it being unique and standing out does it still serve a, a purpose or a role and if not what the hell go go yeah. mad just have fun with it and then and then over time when you feel like it, it it is actually working you know pull it back to that logical place i think you have to go to extremes to to find the sweet spot and you know what I use when I'm going to the sweet spot with extremes? <laughs> I, use, I use Rhino Ed from Texas Ferry Supply. And Aussie USA makes Rhino Ed, and if you need to go to extremes and you need to pull it out, go get yourself some of that Rhino Ed uh, red line and, at Texas Ferry Supply. If you go to TexasFerrySupply.com and use the promo code KNIFETALK10, you're going to get 10% off your order and get yourself some of that Rhino Wet. I tell you what, if you, I use that Rhino Wet all the time. I think it is dynamite stuff. I heard about it first from Nick, Nick Wheeler mm -hmm. and we're, it's sweeping the nation, baby. It's, I tell you what, you get, you get yourself a little bit of that Rhino Wet, 
Get some 220, get some 400, get some 800, get anywhere in between. You will say to me, why was I waiting so long? Mm -hmm. So go get yourself some of that Rhino Wet Texas Ferry Supply. And if you're in Canada, you need to get some of it. Maritime Knife Supply also has it too. So So I just got a bunch from Lawrence. I held out. I was one of the probably the longest holdouts on on Rhino Wet. I thought I had a paper that was better and I was just refusing to even accept that Rhino Wet could could hold up to it and i tried writing it a few times but i've recently ordered a few sheets from lawrence tried it out again did a couple head-to-heads i'm sold yeah. i'm sold what's the different I, colors I, I, this has come up before but i've forgotten because i actually saw a, a different color brand than red line being advertised well, they're the Rhino Wet, I think that Rhino Wet started out, they do a lot of like car yeah, stuff, car buffing yeah. stuff, auto, auto, like car painting and stuff like that. So there's a lot more, there's like a yellow line and then there's the red line. Mm. And the red line is really for kind of metal working yeah. and stuff like that. And then the other one's for like auto body and stuff like that. So, but I mean, it's dynamite stuff and there. It's just, I, I give, I think Nick Wheeler is the one to, 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 to thank for the Rhino Wet thing. But yeah. Um, I had some fun putting but, uh, some on the end of um, what's the, the the vibrating tool thing called the multi tool. Oh well, I mean, where do we begin? Where do we go with that one? Where do we begin, big no, guy? I mean, do, do you know the are they, are, what are they call multi tools? Aren't they the things with the you, you can change the heads and for saws and woodwork and little kind of things? It's a oscillator. Saw, oscill- like a, a sawzall? No, no, it's it's the oscillating yeah. tool that's at the end of a. Oh yes, multi tool. Right, aren't they called multi tools? Yeah, I I, I, I got know. an attachment and, no, and I, I, I put a bit of um, little pads of Rhino Wet on the end of that and was using that for helping with mirror polishing. Oh, look at you. Look at you. Yeah, it's kind of... There you go. Backed up, on, <laughs> you, backed up against it and, uh, you know, I know I know all about Bent it. Bent over the table That's... and people can hear the... the, the yeah. That seems high risk, high reward, though, right? Because like one false move, and you might accidentally no, no, like, no. If, dig it, it, the it engine actually, or not, something. Not at all, because it, no? oh. I was just taking the more flexible kind of thinner version of of the the the, the sort. It was a saw tip, you know, like if you're going to go into a bit of drywall, uh, right, or plasterboard or whatever you want to call it, and you know, it's just a small little tooth. So I ground off the tooth off that, and it was a soft, soft flexible bit of metal, and I just sprayed it with adhesive, and I just put my the pads of Rhino Wet onto the end of it that were larger than the tool itself, and then right. just as long yeah. as it's flat on the surface, you're, you're great. And actually, it was brilliant for getting into choy lines and everything. You have a quite fantastic control. Um, wow! Yeah, oh, that's really cool. So yeah, at some point, those reciprocating saws are going to have to be. But that's a different. Is a reciprocating a... saw a different thing though? It's kind of like a jigsaw, but yeah, you yeah. hold it like a gun almost. I would think that that's the tick, the tip for the first attachment for the hand sanding attachment is going to involve a uh, somebody's going to figure out how to do an easy automated uh, hand sanding attachment. It's going to go on the end of a tiger saw. It's going to go on the end of a reciprocating saw, and people are going to be able to hand sand without like a you know. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. So the next question is, this is uh, Tristan Benedict. Tristan Benedict writes, and this is this is good based on our, our previous conversation. Hey, guys, I was wondering if you have any tips for making wrought iron sand my. Is there anything different from using mild or high carbon as the outer layers? Yeah. Rod, Not in my experience. Yeah, rod, wrought iron as a cladding has, has a, a, a lovely pattern to it once once etched i feel there's something kind of beautiful noble i mean it, it's often upcycled and, and everything you know there is a bit of history behind the rot and i think it is starting to have as as a cladding for a san mai but uh, i'm afraid i'm not the man to talk about the metallurgy of it 
I I find it it's beautiful, but it's also kind of risky because it. I mean, it's very reactive, right? I mean, wrought iron is one of those things that it'll rust, man. It's mm. it's got little pits and little uh, inclusions, and I mean, it's a dirty material, which is why it's so beautiful, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and so it's sort of risky using it as a jacket. Like I'm always a little torn. It's it's gorgeous, but is it entirely like the most functional choice for a Sanmai jacket? Probably not. Probably there's probably a bit of like a function compromise there, but um, in my experience, in terms of forge welding the billets, I didn't. I mean, you're getting it up to forge welding heats anyway. Um, it's pretty much it pretty much works the same for me as like mild steel. So. I would think that a lot of it has to do. You could you could really get into sentimentality. Like I have pieces of steel from uh, pieces of uh, rivets and pieces of steel from the Tappan Zee Bridge in our neighborhood that was taken down our, in, our, in the area. And I would think like you could you could make some you could make some sandmai parts. You could make some sandmai knives with the jackets are part of the bridge, and there's some some sort of like the story. Yeah, yeah, the story of it. Yeah, that's you know? awesome. That's great. I'm not going to do it though. I'm not really. No? I, you know what? I, forge welding to me is, I, I honestly feel like, like I don't do, I mean, I have made a couple bars of Damascus, but honestly, I'm just trying to be a better knife maker. And the, the better knife maker that I'm looking for now is better at grinding, better at making a final product, better making, better at making the edges and making everything better. But also as a bladesmith, I'm trying to be a better blacksmith. And mm. I don't think that, I think that my forging, I don't think that I have as, as much control as I want in order for me to kind of like get into making Damascus and Sanmai. Just not, I mean, I just don't feel like I'm ready. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like also that's okay. And when I'm ready, I'm ready. Oh yeah. If it doesn't excite you or if you're just not, yeah. I mean, you got to just go where your heart brings you, right? Or points you. Yeah, I, like I'm, I'm hoping to in the future build another workshop um, because I, I don't know if you've seen from Instagram, but like my workshop is tiny, and I kind of like that about it. But in the future, if I actually had an area that was full time dedicated to, you know, had a good gas forge and a coal, a coal forge and, you know, anvil ready, you know, would I go out there more, and would that be the lure? Because um, my sister at one point got into pottery. And it was amazing at it. And, you know, we built a, 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 you know, my dad predominantly built an area for her to make all her pots and things on it. But it was an old stable. There was no light in there, no natural light whatsoever. And it killed it for her. There was a thing where mm. actually if you can d develop and build a space that lures you into it to do those kind of things, you'll find yourself. Um, and that's probably more important than perhaps just getting off your ass and wanting to do it. You know, what will make you go back is... And, and and part of the creative process is the space that you work within, you know, if that if yep. that's something to discuss nearly. You got to make it easy for yourself. Yeah. yeah. Make it attractive. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to, I got one more question and then we're going to go into something else. Mm -hmm. uh, Naren McDonald, who I got to meet at Maker Cam, Naren's a dynamite guy. He says, here's a knife making question for you. Uh, in order to get a balance between a slight flex and toughness, do boning knives require different heat treating formulas than chef knives that's made from the same material? It's a good question. So, yeah, you, I, I temper the shit out of boning knives. I mean, just give it a little bit more. You, you, your tips can break on them. I mean, like we said, we all want that magical point where perhaps a blade will bend first and take a set before it would snap off. If you had any preference of something happening, I'd sooner it sort of bent rather than snapped. Um, but the... Um, 
It's knowing still, you know, within the logic, of course, of what I just said. But what sort of hardness are you going for? Like for a boning knife? That's the, that's the, it's interesting. I've, I've often found, and this has happened to me in the past, depending on the steels I'm using, I've increased the temper quite a lot. I mean, I'm going to talk centigrade here, but like normally I'd, I'd sort of put them into 200, 250 degree tempers if they're regular chef knives, if it's, if it's your sort of 14C28N or anything else. But I've, Taking them up to 350, 400 kind of degree temper, uh, tempers. Mm. And I haven't seen the drop that I was supposed to on the chart. It's like these higher temperatures. And there is a point then when you go higher with the tempers that actually they become brittle blades, but the, it's not like the Rockwell's coming down. You're actually, they'll actually, yeah, it's, it, you're probably doing more damage to the knife than you are just affecting the, the temper on it. So mm. I, I, I think that. There's something to be said that we are sort of putting so much focus and attention onto each knife that we heat treat because we're only doing two or three at a time that we're taking them out really quickly and we're putting them between the plates really quickly or into the oil really quickly. And we're doing these technically perfect heat treats all the time. Whereas I wonder if you do have a giant killing and you've got a trolley of blades and it takes five minutes to get all these blades out and then to get them cool and, you know, do you kind of get a more relaxed heat treat that actually works in your favor? Sometimes are we probably too perfect with our heat treating? Can you can you probably be a little bit more relaxed in certain ways and actually find yourself maybe getting a better boning knife or something a bit more relaxed, like a an oyster shucker, purely through an imperfect heat treat, if you know what I mean? Like, huh. you know, <laughs> as opposed to just using a temper at the end. And that's something I'm, I'm kind of, I'd love, I'd love to explore or ask somebody who knows more than myself about. Part of me thinks it's the geometry of the blade too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a boning knife, a boning knife and a chef knife, you're going to have more flex. Well, you, there's the difference between a boning knife and a fillet knife. Yeah. A fillet knife is generally a little bit more flexible. And I mean, for me, a lot of it is just the geometry. If I'm using a fillet knife, I might be using 16th inch steel. Mm. If I'm using a bone, making a boning knife, I'm probably doing 332 seconds to an eighth of it. 30 seconds is where I go at. And just the geometry of the boning knife being an inch, inch and a quarter at the longest from the spine to the edge, you're naturally going to, and the, how thicker that spine is, you're naturally going to have a stiffer knife mm. anyway. Like mil and a half is probably a fish and then sort of two mil, two and a half mil sort of boning knives. And and tempering is your thing that's playing with the temp, with the, the snapping and whatever else. But you're right, geometry is incredibly important. Um you know on the on those blades but it's some people like rigid firm knives and some people like really flexible i I know that from the guys that work when we are boning everybody has a preference and i do like a semi a semi kind of firm sort of blade um yeah but with fish mackerel or whatever kind of small fish that you wanted to kind of almost you know go with the, the 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 you know follow the bones and do everything like that it's yeah, it, it, it's an old world. It's a whole world to itself. But do you know what it all comes back to again in the end is is why so many of these knives are actually softer is actually for the ability to constantly sharpen them on the spot. Right. So you're, you yeah. know, you take out your steel or your hone and you give it a couple of licks and your your edge is back and you don't mind doing that every 10 minutes as opposed or or whatever it is in your routine. So it's all about them not snapping and knowing that they're soft for you to be able to put an, a keen edge back on very quickly. I forgot yeah. that because we were working with some butchers and they sharpen their knife every day. They're, the butchers sharpen mm. their butchering knife every day. They're m- m- removing material every day. Our place is full of dicks. 
we've got dicks everywhere. There's just everywhere was, you look, you turn around, there's s- another dick. It's those. I bon- was about to say you were talking <laughs> talking before. You were talking before about you and your guys boning, and the, yeah, of course no, there are a lot of dicks around. There's a lot of dicks while you're boning. Yeah, it, that, that's course, just what all happens. All the time, yeah, yeah. So, obviously. And you put your you put your, and, your boner through through the dick as as much times as. <laughs> are the dicks? Are the dicks? They're those. Like they're those sem- kind of semi hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we Thank we God. we like Thank we like smooth. We like the smooth dicks as opposed to the coarse dicks. The all the, yeah, the yeah. all new all different knife talk is still the same <laughs> still bullshit. The, <laughs> still, the same, same, yeah. still the same bullshit. Bring you down to my level, baby. Bring you down to my level. I love it. No, the, the um, do you, they're the spring loaded sort of diamond hones. <laughs> do you do? Do you make bony knives, Noah? Uh, no. Well, I've made a couple when I started. So when I started making knives, I was living in way up north in northern Quebec in a native community. And there was a lot of demand for fillet knives because, I mean, they're avid, avid fishermen. And so that seemed to be all I was doing for like a whole summer was just making fillet knives and having guys come back and be like, ah, it's too flexible. Ah, it's too stiff. Ah, it's too long. It's too short. And so, you know, I just had a lot of, you know, a lot of experience in that very brief moment. And then basically haven't made one since. So if if you don't mind me asking, I mean, obviously now you're not you're not giving them sand my you know thousand dollar knives how are you how are you doing the uh were they inexpensive boning knives or oh when i first started making knives i was just charging basically materials i i i mean i just wanted to sell the knife to be able to get some feedback from the person who bought it mm. and have a bit of money to buy some more materials so i could make more knives the first three years of knife making was just my education as far as i'm concerned so i didn't i wasn't making any money really um so we're you know they were they were like 250 canadian was what i was selling for i mean and it was you know i mean that's still a lot of money for somebody right um but you know with a leather sheath they were stainless steel i was using 1 uh stock like you um stainless steel with nice handles, you know, like mm, nice yeah. hardwood figured handles and stuff like that, but more aiming towards the the functional kind of daily use type right. of knife. Yeah, it's kind of right. funny when the when the actual blade is 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 thinner than the tang, as opposed to the other way around. Sometimes, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. There, there. It's a strange, and they bend like crazy on you, right? Like when you're grinding a, oh, a fillet you, knife. I mean, any good like fillet knife, pass, you can it, you can it, easily it bends yeah. one way or the other. Yeah, you can easily put they're, a set in them, um, and 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 change them but um right yeah it, it's something anything They're that thin ones. anything that thin it, it yeah i made a charcuterie knife and it's like it was like 12 inches long and a three quarter inches from the spine to the edge which is like i mean it was like it was a like grinding a noodle i mean it was literally like the mm. the craziest thing i'd ever done and i wish i could make more but they were such a bitch to make that I, I kind of uh, I this kind is for of your mortadella kind of stop. <laughs> well, it was for like smoked salmon. It was oh like yeah, a smoked yeah, salmon yeah. knife. It was for like it was for like making paper thin smoked salmon, and it was awesome. Oh, and yeah. I know that it was like I made it, and then my business partner came down. and I showed it to him. He's just like, "Dude, we're gonna make a lot of money with these." And I'm like, oh, it's just too much of a pain in the ass. Yeah. And it was like, but we would have been the only we would have been the only guys making like those those very thin smoked salmon knives. But it was like such a bitch. It was like a let, it was like trying to grind a noodle. It was right. ridiculous. Right. Totally ridiculous. The last thing I want to bring up before we go is no, no. Do you have? Have you been to the D, um, the Damasteel Invitational? No, but it's awesome. I mean, yeah, if, it's really cool. If you're not at the New England School of Metalwork on November twelfth, you should join the fun. And okay. tickets are fr- tickets are free. 
and you can go to Damasteel, follow Damasteel Lab. That's our buddies at Damasteel. They have the Chef's Knife's Invitational on November 12th. And uh, you can go follow them and their links, their tick, free tickets to the in the bio. And you can, for the day, they'll have this event and all the people doing it. No, um, Fingal's going to be there and a lot of friends of ours are mm. going to be there. And, and you can interact with them and it's a lot of fun. And then Knife Talk's going to do a, um, we do the kind of the red carpet show, which is my favorite time of the year. Nice. And if you want to get yourself some Damasteel, you go to damasteel.se and use the promo code Knife Talk for 10% off your Damasteel. And this is what I wanted to, Number one is the show is a blast, a total blast. It's, it's a great bit have, of technology. I mean, to actually have multiple rooms, text, multiple um, it's, screens, kind of, or, or I suppose people live streaming at the exact same time and hopping around between all these and then combine that with the events that go on at the same time, the competition element cool. of it, the, um, the, the, yeah. Knife it's a global it's global mm. it's global it's it's, cr- it's just crazy digital? this is all just yeah, online yeah. It's okay it's all yeah. virtual it's all virtual and oh, we right, actually virtual. do yeah. we record it and then we put it up the next day next monday and then we end up interviewing everybody and it's hilarious and it's funny and i, I feel like it's like a like a red carpet show but what what's cool is you got guys in like at nighttime in you know it's nighttime in like norway and then guys who are you know in the philippines and all throughout the entire you know people knife makers around the world are at there at the same time and it's it's great and it's it's, it's a lot of fun and and uh, we have a good time but i wanted to talk about damasteel because fingal is the man fingal you hooked me up so hard on how easy it was to well you, use you the knew damasteel. everything to do anyway but it was fun to talk Not with really. you. it was fun to talk with you about it at the time because i like anything when you're about to go down to these things it's lovely to to kind of to go through the variations because the, the 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 devil's in the detail isn't it concentration of acids and whatever temperatures and and yeah it was it was i was surprised at how easy it was to heat treat mm, i was surprised yeah. at how easy it was to grind and i was surprised how easy it was to etch to the point where i think you and i were talking fingal it was easier to etch than damascus it, it's me. sometimes yeah i mean like you're not going to suffer unless you have any grease on it or anything kind of like that you're not going to have sort of smudges like you can with high carbon steels right. and ferric um you know it but i think it's all about playing it safe like all of these things you don't put it in and sort of walk away and half an hour come back there's never any harm in going over to a blade that's etching and pulling it out every five minutes and having a quick peek before putting it, it was yeah, you know, just take it to the point no, you wanted to there were no smears there was no weirdness mm. there was no fuzziness there was no like oxides there were well there were oxides but there was no like um decarb there weren't mm. you didn't see any smoky decarb it was great i mean it was really easy to use but i i'm, I'm fascinated by we've just i wanted to talk about you know i don't know you work with sand Mai and there's a lot of etching involved and i think you want to start to get involved more with, the, with damascus do you ever find that the etching part of damascus and same thing for you fingal do you ever find it to be overwhelming or daunting in uh, regards to you know the process oh yeah sometimes it's like it's just banging your head against the wall and you have to start over and start over and mm. start over and it can be it can be maddening just to you know get a good clean edge sometimes i have that with with high carbon stuff and not so much yeah. with stainless steel is but, it is it more consistent and easier with stainless damn steel does exactly what it says in the tin i mean you have yeah. to put the work in beforehand maybe mirror polishing and doing all that kind of side of things i, I do a lot of stuff with perhaps tekafu steels and, and sumanagashis and and these kind of multiple layered 
stainless things and and i have huge variations but i always find that having fucked things up so many times over my life that you actually can turn a mistake into into something beautiful (laughs) right so i think knowing that you over it something you embrace that and i I kind of learn how to buff and hand sand it to a certain point where actually it just has taken a different approach but it's still as beautiful and 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 it's it but I, i i think that this is where playing with different acids and, and different techniques and multiple steps. And I, I find that I do a lot of the etching before I even make the, put the handle on. And I, like, I suppose that's the case all the time, but um, I always kind of sometimes give a little kiss of, of acid and, and an etch at the very end, at the very end of life, just to bring everything and the luster back up. Um, but huh. yeah, no stainless steels just play ball with me. And I, I've always had fights with high carbon because the funny thing is, you know, you can do things like if you put it into, you know, your bread soda and then I use an air compressor to, uh, no, sorry, into ferric chloride, into bread soda, neutralize. Baking soda. That's the one. The Thank United you. States Thank you. Yeah. Right. yeah. And then I take the, um, uh, I squirt it with Windex, Windex or equivalent. Right. And, and it's kind of homemade version. I have a concentrate that I kind of, so it's a dilute Windex. And then I use a air compressor to, to dry it. So no cloths, no paper towels. So I think in some ways, depending on the steel, um, the bread soda can kind of fix a bit of the black color in a little bit. Um, mm. But by rubbing it out very quickly with a cloth and taking it off, you actually can take that away. So sometimes by actually just using the air compressor, um, it kind of almost sets a little bit of the color kind of in there. And then I can tell straight away if I do have any ghosts or anything to kind of deal with. And I'll have to go back to the, the beginning. And then I have a very soft mop on my... Um, on my wheel that I'll um, that I'll use to uh, to kind of give it a little kiss at the end, and that's and I, you have to do sometimes do that multiple times, but that's the process. I think that's the reason why I don't like Damascus as much, because uh, I feel like as though it's a little bit too much. Yeah, it's part of the process. Like you can't just make the steel; you also have to kind of do. You have to make it look nice. You got to bring it right. out, mm. right? And that bringing out the pattern. It, it can kind of make or break it, right? If, if you, you know, if it needs to be a high contrast pattern where those blacks are staying black mm. and for some reason you just can't get it even. So, so you decide, well, I'm just going to have to go for like a low contrast, but, but like a nice deep etch, but it's just, you know, maybe it doesn't look nice. Maybe it doesn't show off the steel as well. So it's like, there are different ways to do it, but it's finding the way that's going to sort of highlight the pattern best mm. i guess that's how i see there's it. another one that to bring into the equation i feel is that we can always make a knife very beautiful a blade stunning but after the first or second or third time or even a week of using that knife as as, as the owner will it still be sexy after that i mean it'd be different if it's a high carbon steel blade you know you're gonna have patinas developing and stuff like that but i feel there's no point in trying to make something that's just going to disappear into the ether and will be a disappointment to somebody so it's it right there is yeah. some element of or perhaps what the blades that i predominantly will work with are designed to either evolve change and develop but you know not just disappear and it was like um, you know one and done it was the, the only time it was magical was the day you opened it you know yeah, there's a bit of that. It's true. And then you also have to worry about how much of this dark stuff that makes the blade look so beautiful is end up ending up on the guy's onion. Yes. Dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard people say, I've heard people say, uh, Damascus makes my, discolors my food. Damascus? Or, or, or you mean high carbon, high carbon Damascus? High carbon yeah. Damascus. Yeah. I feel like it's the oxides that are rubbing well, off. Well, tomatoes. I tomatoes and onions and acidic food. I think eventually that'll stop. Yeah. But. Well, 
I mean, it is kind of like a, you know, I can't be, I would imagine it is a drag for somebody who's not prepared for it. Yeah, but I mean, ATC or V2, blade, like like that steel is very reactive. So your onions and your tomatoes compared to 52100, which would, would be very slow to tarnish. Um, and you either are the type of chef that will, will always have a tea towel on your hip or on the, on the island that you're just literally wiping with after you've used. I mean, it's, it's either the, the steel that you, you know how to work with um, and you know the risks as well of, of high acid foods. Um, but, you know, I think that yeah, there is, there is stainless steel is, is kind of a no-brainer in that respect. And I feel like lots of modern stainless steels can perform just as well um as 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 high carbon steels but i still does still doesn't stop you loving it more (laughs) no they're both great Mm. noah vashon fingal ferguson the all new all different knife talk ladies and gentlemen we did it we covered it all we covered a lot we covered a lot covered a lot guys thank you so much for filling in it was a pleasure Oh, and I appreciate. I it was, the honor was mine. It was, oh, I'm glad you. you picked up the phone when I. I'm glad you answered the DM when I said if you want to come on or not. I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. All right. There you go. Finkel Ferguson, Noah Vashon. You guys know these guys. Go follow them on Instagram. Vashon Knives. Yep. Finkel Ferguson. You all know him. Guys, we're going to do this again sometime. We're going to do the all new, all different uh, uh, knife talk again. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again next week. Mareko's back from his long trip. We're going to catch up with him. Craig is, he's working on the album, working on the album. He's, he sent me pictures. He's looking good. So guys, once again, go follow these guys and go follow Knife Talk on Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram. If you want, write us a nice review that helps the show. Follow our sponsors. Give our sponsors some love. Let them know that you appreciate the show. And we'll see you next week. Do, All right, guys? Do terrible reviews help? <laughs> Well, we've been recently getting some. I've been getting some DMs that aren't been great. So I, I you terrible. Do not don't get any terrible. What was the What was the one where where that the company? I still to this day love that that restaurant that said write me terrible reviews and it became a game unto itself. <laughs> don't do that with us, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Don't, don't leave nice that alone. Leave only that nice one. things. Only nice things. Please. Only nice things, guys. All right, we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Noah and Fingal. That was awesome. Thank you so much. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.